Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. We apologize for the extended absence of our show, but we are happy to be back kicking off the new year. This is Arnie, your host, and I am once again joined by Jacob. You whores, you politicians, you'll ask for a Stephen King review, and I'll whisper, no. (laughs) That's right. This is Jacob, and we're here to do Watchmen. (laughs) Damn it. I'm so close to done with the dead zone. I'm going to say on this show, in three weeks, you'll have the dead zone, and we're going to kick King back off. But no, here today... We're doing another graphic novel review. In the archives, you can find us talking about The Dark Knight Returns. You can hear us talk about Batman Year One. We've done quite a few. I think we did a Constantine a Constantine one as well. Yeah. I remember reading some of those with Swamp Thing and whatnot. It was we've done quite a few comics, and we are here discussing what I believe has the reputation of being the most important capital I comic book of all time. Well, I remember, I mean, I got into comics like hardcore where I was buying them in 1989 when Tim Burton's Batman came out. That's got me into a comic book shop and there, there there's real big boon right around the nineties with all these comic book shops opening. And I remember, you know, being 13 years old, however old I was, there was always Watchmen in the background. It was always like whisperings of like, this is the greatest comic book ever. And it was actually very intimidating for me. Like I went years, years, without reading it because it just it was scary it's almost like art spiegelman's mouse which is all about the holocaust it's just every pretentious art kid in high school carried that book around i'm just like oh i just i don't want to read it because of the people who read it and i finally asked a friend i'm like is it that good he's like yes i read and it was that good and watchman was kind of the same way it was just it was intimidating because of its reputation i finally did pick it up though but not until gosh around probably 2000 99, 2000, something like that. I, I read comics for about 10 years before I actually checked it out. Wow, it is so funny to me how our stories, much like stories in The Watchmen, have parallels and then veer in wildly different directions. <laughs> I, too, got into comics in 1989, but it was not because of Batman. It was because of Star Trek. Star Trek V came out, did miserable, but they actually were continuing the stories seemingly canonically, picking up right where Star Trek V left off with a comic book published by DC. And so I entered a comic book store for the first time in my life, and it happened to be the week McFarlane's Spider-Man number one came out. Huge, huge book, yeah. It's just coincidence, no clue. And this guy's trying to sell me a copy of Spider-Man number one, telling me how much it's going to be worth. (laughs) <laughs> it was for a short amount of time. He was telling the truth, and then the market crashed. He was right. I did have the platinum, the gold, the silver, <laughs> the green. I had all the variants at one point, but it started with that. But I never got into comic book culture because I moved to Illinois, and the comic store here was the most stereotypical comic book store in the world with those clerks that are very nose in the air. And if you haven't read Watchmen, they don't even want to talk to you. When I was 14, 15 years old, 
I was buying superhero comics and Star Trek comics, mostly Marvel. So I didn't really even know about Watchmen. I think I'd heard about it, but I was a Marvel guy. I kind of stayed away from DC. I'm sure I'd heard its name here and there, but it was the movie that really gained my attention to it and the hype for it and the trailer for it. And we're going to be reviewing it tomorrow at nowplayingpodcast.com. I will say that movie did wonders for sales of Watchmen. Like it, it was one of those that have always sold. Like they're on like the 25th printing or something of it at this point. But yeah, when that trailer came out for the film, like even Barnes and Noble was sold out of copies. And I remember, you know, I was still going to comic book shops at the time. Now I just get it all mail order. But at the time I was going to comic book shops every week. They could not keep that Watchmen graphic novel on the shelf when that movie was announced and that trailer came out. Yes. If I can ape your opening, I went to Barnes and Noble and asked for Watchmen. The clerk looked at me and said, no, <laughs> I had to Amazon it. I, it was an impulse buy. I just stopped at Barnes and Noble to get Watchmen in the lead up for the movie. And I'll talk about when I saw the movie, but I wanted to read this. I wanted to see the source material first. I had to order it from Amazon. It took me months to read months. <laughs> wow. Okay. I, I don't remember how long it took me the first time, probably a couple of weeks. But uh, in 2005, they came out with the Absolute Edition, which are these really nice, you know, archival editions. I talked about it with the Dark Knight Returns. I, that's the version I have now, big, oversized. That came out in 2005, so I bought that version then uh, and read it for the second time. So in five years, I read it twice. That second time, I read it a little bit. I probably read it within a week. And so this is actually only my third time, though. When the movie came out, I did skim through some parts of it after I saw the film just to review. Did they change this? Did they do this to it? I wanted to do some comparison. But this is really the third time sitting down and really reading Watchmen. I wanted to do this with you back in 2009 when the film came out. <laughs> you were joining Now Playing. We were talking about Saw. I'd read Watchmen for the first time. And I'm like, greatest graphic novel of all time? Pishaw, <laughs> dear sir. I had a negative reading experience, which is why it took me months. It wasn't like it was hard to read. It was hard to pick up. Okay. It was laborious to me. Every time that damn black freighter showed up, I put the book down for like weeks and just wow. not want to pick up another frame. Well, we'll talk about what that is if our <laughs> listeners don't know. But uh, look, th there's a lot of text pieces in Watchmen. And I remember when the movie was coming out in 2009 and I, I would hang out at this comic book shop for like hours on Wednesday and just talk to the owner, talk to friends that I had coming in there. I remember he would tell people buying Watchmen because there's all these text pages in the back of each issue and he's like just skip them just stick to the story because yeah it could be foreboding you're reading all this yeah you're jumping to pirates all of a sudden you got text pages from excerpts from a, a fictional tell-all in there there's a lot going on I, I could see how someone could just maybe get frustrated especially look it's got a reputation for being the greatest graphic novel of all time in 86 when this was getting published in 87 when it finally was released. Yeah, probably. I mean, we talked about in the Dark Knight Returns, like 86 was a big deal for comic book landscapes changing from kind of these characters that had been neutered by the comics code and they, they couldn't really be dark and gritty. And then Frank Miller and Alan Moore come along and tell some very dark and gritty stories with Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns. And that really changed 
the what people thought you could do with comics and, and so i yeah i think it's it's really got a historical place uh, today though maybe it hasn't kept up and i guess we'll talk about that as we go through this review if it if it still has an impact or if it's just a homework as you might call it on now playings yeah i wanted to do it back then i'll say right now for our listeners the show we're going to record now in 2016 is going to be vastly different than the show I was wanting to do in 2009. <laughs> I like shows with conflicts of opinion. That's why we always have a skeptic on now playing. I like the debate that comes out of differing viewpoints. And I was going to take a very unpopular stance. My stance may still be unpopular, but it is softened in seven years and on my second reading, which I did for this. I wasn't looking forward to it, but I had wanted to discuss it with you, Jacob, for seven years now. <laughs> so I read it again, and we're here to talk about it. And I'm not even quite sure how you start. It's almost like we're here today to discuss Romeo and Juliet by William yeah. Shakespeare. <laughs> Where do you want to start tackling what has been deemed so important, so influential, transformative of the comic book experience. I mean, I, I guess Alan Moore, that would, <laughs> that would be the most obvious place to start. And, you know, he's got this reputation now being this great. And I've, I've said it on past, I'm guessing, books and nachos. He, he's very formalist to me. He, he really gets into the form of his comics. Sometimes they're cold to me, though. And... Does that apply to Watchmen or not? We'll see. But Alan Moore, you know, coming out of 1984, he said, you know, 1985, he starts thinking of these ideas about, you know, what what about what's the comic book world like coming out of Big Brother and that Orwellian dystopia of 1984 and, and starts coming up with these ideas. He had been working on Swamp Thing, which kicked off the Vertigo imprint for DC, you know, sophisticated suspense. He, he really was taking these silly, I guess you could say, concepts and trying to make them more mature. You know, his Swamp Thing run is is very good. And so he's like, what can I do with superheroes? And he had done this with Marvel Man or which became Miracle Man, which is now, I think, being printed as Miracle Man under Marvel now that they own the character. And they printed his whole run as by the original writer. He would not let him use his name on those reprints. But, you know, that's a very dark taking a Captain Marvel from DC. I know this is getting confusing. Or Shazam, if you remember that character from <laughs> Legends of the Superheroes. Miracle Man was that kind of character, and he told a very, very dark story in those Miracle Man comics. So, I, I you know, I, I think Alan Moore, he's coming along, and he really wants to deconstruct superheroes, I feel. Like, he wants to see what makes him tick and see what they say about our culture. He, as an anarchist, I think might have a problem with superheroes, seeing these people trying to uphold the status quo. And I will admit that coming to this the first time, I expected a superhero comic. Here's what I had heard, but I now know it to be false. I had heard that he wanted to do a story using classic DC characters like Batman and Superman and tell a story about their perversions and their private lives and even kill a couple of them off. And I thought it was going to be like a what if type of story. And I can certainly see some mappings in here. I can see Night Owl is very much a Batman type of character. Rorschach's kind of a Dark Knight type of character. And Dr. Manhattan, it doesn't take much to see him as an alien who crashed on Earth versus a scientist who underwent a stereotypical lab accident, as did so many superheroes in the 60s. So 
I had thought I was reading a superhero comic, but like a more, I'm hesitant to use the word adult or mature because those actually have positive connotations. <laughs> I thought it was supposed to be just a more kind of perverse take on it, looking at them as these fetishists who wear this outfit. And I was curious, honestly, why people loved it. Well, maybe we'll get into that. I think, I mean, there there is a little bit about who are these characters. And, and I'm talking about the main characters, Rorschach and Night Owl, the comedian. They didn't come from DC, but in 1985, DC did purchase Charlatan Comics. And I don't know if you've ever heard of The Question or Blue Beetle, who are pretty mainstream, you know, BC listers in DC now. I might have heard of Blue Beetle, or I could be thinking of The Tick. <laughs> Yeah, they look similar. They're both blue insects. <laughs> but yeah, the, DC got these characters. And so Alan Moore is like, okay, well, let's take those. So like The Question, who was created by Steve Ditko, very big into Ayn Rand and objectivism, you know, Atlas Shrugged. And, and The Question kind of had that philosophy. So Alan Moore's like, okay, I can do this superhero and really exaggerate this this objectivist philosophy with them and i'll take there was a character called the peacemaker who would fight dictators and that would become the comedian who you know is going to go on these these secret government missions to overthrow governments and that but he had all these charlatan characters that dc owned he's like great i'm just going to use these and then dc stepped in and saw what he was doing or what he was planning on doing and he's going to kill some of them off. They're like, well, we might actually want to use these. So he had to change them. So I, I mentioned like the question became Rorschach. Peacekeeper became the comedian. Dr. Manhattan, you had a character called Captain Adam who was atomized, whatever that may mean, in a rocket ship and was able to reform himself. This may sound very familiar for <laughs> when we get into the plot, what Dr. Manhattan is, but that character became Dr. Manhattan. Blue Beetle, is interesting because you have Night Owl 1 and Night Owl 2 in Watchmen. Blue Beetle, there, there was a version of him where it was all based on, kind of like Green Lantern, the original version is kind of based on magic. And then you had a more technically advanced version, Ted Cord, Blue Beetle. And that's who Night Owl 2 is based on. You have Thunderbolt, who was this character who, whose parents died at a very young age, and he was taken in by monks, and he achieved peak physical and mental perfection, Ozymandias is who that becomes. And you had Nightshade, who was kind of a generic female character, but that's going to become Silk Spectre. Now, I will say that when going through the movie research, obviously Alan Moore, he's not quite a J.D. Salinger type of hermit. I mean, he still works. He still talks to some human beings. <laughs> yes, whenever one of his movies get adapted and he needs to complain. Yeah. <laughs> But he doesn't really talk much. I couldn't find a whole lot with him. But Dave Gibbons was all over the Blu-ray special features. He said he created Night Owl and that Night Owl was the one character. And I'm, I'm not arguing with you so much as just reiterating what he says to bring an alternate history. He says that he created Night Owl when he was a very young man. And when... Moore was coming up with all these other characters and changing them. He goes, hey, I have this character Night Owl I've always wanted to use. That may be the case. All I, I'm going off of what's actually in the Absolute Edition where they have preliminary sketches. So maybe that, you know, when they found out they couldn't use 
the charlatan characters that DC had acquired. Maybe he stepped in and said, hey, I like to use this Night Owl character. Dave Gibbons, I mean, we've talked a lot about Alan Moore getting into the artist, Dave Gibbons, who we did talk about him before when we did a Books and Nachos for Secret Service, which became the movie Kingsman, the Secret Service. And, you know, I, I felt like the art was standard it's hard telling like how much of him is in Watchmen versus Alan Moore because Alan Moore, like, I don't know if you've ever read like a comic script, but you know, page one, panel one, Alan Moore, panel one, this is a nine panel grid, meaning, you know, you got three at the top, three in the middle, three at the bottom. It, it, it's very authoritative looking, like your eye is drawn right to that center. It's, it's very clean looking. My wife was kind of following along as I was reading this, reading over my shoulder. She has a hard time reading comics because she just doesn't know where to go next. She found this layout very easy to follow. I hate that when there's word balloons in the wrong place and I have to read yes. it like three different ways because I'm trying to read it the way the author intended. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th this is very clean looking. I mean, it, it is easy to read this comic. You know what it reminded me of? I've read so many comic strip compilations, including Amazing Spider-Man. That's how I read mm, comics yeah. as a kid is three panel newspaper strips. And sometimes they would merge a few here or a few there. But I've also read Dilbert compilations, you know, all those newspaper daily strips. And I'm so used to reading those. That until Gibbons pointed out on the Blu-ray about the nine-panel structure, it just was natural to me because that's what it is. It's like each of these could be a daily newspaper strip only without the endless repetition of here's what <laughs> happened yesterday. Yeah. I think Gibbons did have a lot of input when it came to the art. You know, a lot of times when you... People are inking comics. It's different today because a lot of it's just done on Photoshop. But back then, they'd use brushes. To, to And he want, he actually used, like, drafting pens. He wanted it to just look a little bit different. Look like a superhero comic, but just different enough that there was just something off. You could tell. It was just a little bit different. But I love the construction of this comic. And again, Alan Moore. So that first panel, these are, these are not huge panels because there's nine of them on a page. Typically, sometimes they'll combine a couple of the panels, but his description for that first panel is a page long. You read that, you can see, oh, if this was like a novel, like he's getting into what the metal grate looks like on that drain, that blood is going to be flowing down in that first panel. Like he, he gets very detailed and it's funny because you see these highlights by Gibbons, uh, you know, Blue, if it's dialogue, like pink, if it's setting. And so you have a page of text and he just highlights like a few lines out of this entire page, what he's actually taking for like notes so he could actually create how this book looks. But a lot of craft in this book. And that's one thing I kind of wanted to talk about before we, I guess, get into the actual story, because technically it, this book blows me away. Just the, the way it reads uh, the way panels are done, there's a lot of tricks where you'll get like overlaying text on an image that's taking place at a different time. So that at one point, you know, Dr. Manhattan's going to be on television. He's getting barraged with questions about if he's giving people cancer. And at the same time, Night Owl and Silk Spectre, as Dan and Lori, they're not in costume. They're in a fight as they're being mugged in an alley. And, you know, it'll say something like the questions are painful, but it's showing Lori and Dan like hurting these people. I, I just like 
how that feels. Like, it feels like there's care there. It, or another point, Lori talks about how Dr. Manhattan sees everyone as shadow and fog. And as she's saying that, it's like steam from a tea kettle is blowing out and actually covering her face. It, it, it's little things like that that I really enjoy seeing. Like, this is why a comic book is special versus a movie, because you're able to manipulate things like this that you might not necessarily be able to do in a novel or in a movie or in a teleplay or whatever. I, I like seeing that so much about the comic form is being paid attention to in this, what I would say is a comic really about comics. Now, what I'd heard was I knew Alan Moore had done this incredibly detailed script. And I do think that each of these panels, if you were so inclined, and it sounds like you are, Jacob, it sounds like you're way <laughs> into this to the point that you would do this, you could get lost in each panel looking at all the subtle details in the background. And I'll say one of the reasons this time it took me a long time to read is I did do that from time to time. I would get lost in the minutia of all the stuff on the screen that created a universe. It also provided social commentary. There's so much packed in here that gives a verisimilitude that ties into the story and ties into the back matter. At the end, when the apocalypse comes, I love that they've named this band that all these people died seeing Pale Horse, referring to the Pale Horsemen of the Apocalypse in the Bible. Like, yeah, those little details like that, and also just story details. Like, when you first start this book off, you think, okay, it's more or less 1985. That's when it takes place. But as you go through, oh, you find out that technology is a little bit different. You go back and look at those pages, you can see those subtle differences that you might not have picked up at first. Yeah, there's so much that what they said on the bonus features, though, is that the writing of this was almost symbiotic, where like they would sit on a couch together, and they would draw on the same board and in come up with the layout and inform the script and collaborate very much together on the whole process. So it's hard to tell in what I've read where one begins and the other ends, except that Alan Moore had an idea for a miniseries that he pitched to DC and brought Gibbons on as the artist. And let me say, having read V for Vendetta, another Alan Moore classic, I'm so glad they got Gibbons here to do the art because I enjoyed the V for Vendetta comic, but that art was something atrocious. I couldn't tell characters apart. <laughs> Art can hurt a story. There's comics that I have where I love the story and I wish there was a better artist on it. Like That's most of Marvel Comics Today output for me, by the way. <laughs> Just going to throw that little jab in there. I Yeah, I don't read a lot of Marvel Comics Today. Maybe that's why. I don't know. But yeah, it's that art does play into it. And I, I think back then in, you know, 85, 86, when the writing, I mean, this did get delayed. It, it's funny. They talk about, oh, the final issue was solicited in April and it didn't come out till like August, which, okay, yeah, that's a delay. Like today you get delays of years <laughs> between issues. Like, so the, the fact that they were worrying about like a four or five month delay is funny in retrospect, seeing the current state of the comic book world. But yeah, I think, you know, today it's all just, oh, emails back and forth. I don't think there's a lot of sitting down and collaborating together. And I haven't read that, that that's what they were doing. But I can see that, like, issue number five, Fearful Symmetry, is probably one of the most famous issues when it just comes to talking about the form. Because it's done in the style where, you know, each page reflects each other. So if you work from front and back towards the middle, like, each page has similar things, similar characters, similar actions going on until you get to where the staple would be in that comic, right in the middle, where 
Adrian Veidt's V in his office building comes together, like, and, and you have that action scene where his assassination's being attempted. So this is what I get for reading it on Kindle. I knew none of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I read it this time. I read it digitally just because it was easier with work and everything to take it back and forth. But, you know, I've sat down and read this you know, in book form twice. And yeah, it's really, that's why I love the absolute edition because it is so large that I can really just look at those panels and see all these little details they get into. Yeah. The first time I read this, it was a paperback graphic novel. This time I did Kindle it because of the same reason at Kindle. I take it with me everywhere I go. Road trip, got my phone, got the Kindle. So I read this on a number of different digital devices. And I guess when it comes to the art, I liked it in that I was able to zoom and really look at every panel much bigger, but I guess I lost some of that with the whole staple thing and that they were really taking their then medium into account. Yeah, like like I said, and as we get into the plot, which I think we'll be doing next, I, I really do feel like what he's talking about is about comics. And, and it, to really get the full impact, I think you can read this as your first comic ever and you'll get an impact out of it. But I, I think kind of like The Dark Knight Returns, you had to understand that that was a reaction to Adam West, Batman 66, to get the full impact, to understand a little bit more about comic book history. I, I think you got to have that knowledge to get the full impact of what Alan Moore wanted to do with Watchmen. In that way, I think it's probably good I didn't read it until when I did because... I got out of comics in the mid-90s. I was ahead of the curve on that. I sold them when they still had value. <laughs> and then I got back into them around the time of the first X-Men film and things. And so having had a decade of comic reading under my belt, mostly Marvel, but also some Dark Horse, some DC, and going back and reading old stuff as well as new, I feel like I was prepared for the type of story it would tell. That said, as we go through it, I'll ask right up front, and I, not as an answer, but just to put the question in the mind of listeners, is this a story that will have the same impact in 2009 when it has existed and been copied and redone and retold and repurposed and just become part of the storytelling medium of comics for almost 25 years? Now we're over 30 years, as it would when you're a comic reader in 85 and there's nothing like this on the shelf. I think that's a legitimate question to ask. And, and reading it today, it, it is different. I mean, you know, James Gunn, who directed Guardians of the Galaxy, he did this whole, like, rant. I don't know if it's a rant, but after Deadpool came out, he's like, I hope people don't take the wrong message away from an R-rated comic book film being so successful. I think they are, because now we're going to get an R-rated cut on Blu-ray for Batman v Superman. So I think people are getting the wrong message. But, you know, he was trying to say, here is the right message to take away from Deadpool. And I feel like with Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns, like that message does get muddled. Like, why was that successful? Is it just because it's a bunch of sadists and there's rape and, and, and violence? Or is it because of the craft, too? I, I feel like the legacy of Watchmen, unfortunately, is more about the darkness that happens in it than the craft that went into into creating it. I'll say, though, and I'm going to perhaps you can correct me on this, but I think that when this came out in 86, I wonder if it's as revolutionary as it is sold as being, because it's not like all the way up until 1985, all we had was Adam West and Super Friends in comic form. I went back because Marvel had done what they called the graphic novel series back in the 80s, and these were not collections of comics. I actually had this big debate with an artist recently about 
what is a graphic novel and what isn't? You know, is a collection of comics considered a graphic novel or is that a trade paperback? But Marvel did these graphic novels that were never published anywhere else. They were longer. They were dour and dull, but they had great art. Some were painted. The one that comes to mind was the basis for the movie X-Men 2, God Loves, Man Kills. Yeah. And I really went back and researched this because I thought all of that was a reaction to Watchmen. Like, well, if Watchmen can do dour, depressing, and adults, we can too. But a lot of those came out beforehand. The era of the more mature, I wouldn't say, you know, 21 and over, but I'll say 16 and up graphic novel was in existence at the time that Alan Moore started doing this. No, I mean, he, like I said, he had already been doing Swamp Thing, which had been moving comics in that direction. We got Vertigo out of that, like I said. And, you know, I gave a lecture at a university once. Uh, it was a class, it was called The Literature of Evil. And I was asked to do a guest lecture about, you know, they just said, do something on comics. You could do whatever. So I kind of did like the evolution of evil in comics, you know, starting with the gangsters in the 40s and then the comics code, you get aliens. But really, yeah, in the 70s, you really got, oh, that civil rights movement and you get that Green Lantern, Green Arrow issue where the black guy chides Green Lantern for not be doing enough to save the black man while he's off saving the orange man and the blue man on other planets. Like, yeah, things were moving in that direction. I think what's different with Watchmen and with Dark Knight Returns is that they weren't just major hits in the comic book community. Like, I, you know, God Loves, Man Kills may have been a hit in the comic book community, but Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns were critical hits, too. They they were getting written up in the New York Times and things like that. So I, I think their reach was just much broad. So, yeah, they, I think they had taken where comics were going and just epitomized them at the time and, and really pushed things in that direction. Yeah, there you may have it, is it crystallized a movement that was already in motion, but it didn't create the movement, nor did it, like, something Dr. Manhattan might do in the comic, did it just pop into existence in a vacuum? That's, I kind of want to just contextualize it, that it may be the pinnacle of this, but it wasn't the first. Yeah, no, I'll agree with you there. And, you know, as we get into this plot, I mean, right away... You find out this is very different. This isn't, you know, Batman with the bat signal going off. You're going to open up on a bloody smiley face and go to a murder scene. I I'll say this for, for Watchmen being about superheroes. It never feels like a superhero comic, except for maybe one or two scenes. It's more of a murder mystery for most of it. I, and I think when I first read this book, that was the most interesting part was who killed the comedian? Who was killing the superheroes, the masks, as they're called in here, adventurers. And that was the, the most interesting hook when I first read this. And I'll say, to start going through it, I felt like issue one was very much a plot-driven superhero comic. I mean, it starts with a murder mystery. A superhero called The Comedian is Killed, and another superhero, Rorschach, who wears perhaps the coolest mask in comic book history... <laughs> I think I see the Dark Overlord on several pages, <laughs> is investigating it. And that drew me in the first time, was like, okay, there's a murder mystery. This felt very relatable, very common. I'm like, all right. But it introduces us to so many characters right away. Again, the first time I read it, not understanding, I thought I was being introduced to a Mirror Universe Justice League, you know? <laughs> what happened if the Justice League separated, but... It is, at least this first issue, and the first few issues, I, I think it... 
being 12 issues, it might get a little foggy at times, but this is a tight first issue. You do not see this kind of stuff in this modern era of decompression where you're going to watch someone walk down the stairs for three pages. It feels like like this. You, you <laughs> but get it's a, a gorgeous three pages, Jacob. <laughs> they, they got a great artist to do that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you get, okay, the comedian, and he's been murdered and Rorschach, who's investigating this murder. You, you see what they look like. Then Rorschach goes around and he's going to talk to Doc Manhattan and Silk Spectre and you're going to see Night Owl 2, Dan Dryberg talking to Hollis, the original night, like you get all the characters in this first issue. You you get a lot of story packed in right away. And you get full on male nudity. I don't think it's full frontal <laughs> in issue one. We're going to get that later. But I don't think it was normal to have nudist superheroes in 85. I'll give him that. No, and they were very, I don't know, worried is the right term. They didn't know how much they were going to be able to get away with. And so they decided to be very tasteful about the nudity. So, yeah, you, you get like a buttocks cheek in this first. It's a very large buttocks cheek, <laughs> but you, you don't get any schlong. And you'll see Dr. Manhattan, like, depending what era. It's, it's kind of a nice way to place what time something is happening in because you jump I mean, from the 40s all the way to the 80s through this, you're going all over the place, you know, depending on how dressed he is. The more dressed he is, the earlier it is. <laughs> if he's naked, you're in present time. And they did that on purpose. Cause they're like, we don't know if we're going to be able to get away with like showing a schlong. So they like pick certain angles to put him at until like they and they never wanted his dick to take away from the book, but they wanted to show, you know, that's an important character trait of Dr. Manhattan. It's a symbol of him losing his humanity is that he also feels like I don't have to go by these mores that people feel they have to go by and I don't have to cover myself in clothes. Yeah. And what you're talking about, about the time jumping, though, like you say, this first issue is tight and it's a great way to pull somebody in by being complex in that there's a lot of characters that we're going to be introduced to. A lot of characters. We're introduced to all of our main 1985 players. But we don't get into the past. Our only notice into the past is that Night Owl 2 Dan is visiting Night Owl 1 Hollis. And Night Owl 1 is talking about the old days. It's going to be like the back matter here, which is... Typed prose. I don't know that I've ever read a comic book with so much prose in it as Watchmen has. Always at the end is like supplemental reading, and I think you could probably get pretty much the same reading experience out of it if you skipped that stuff, as I've been known to skip letters pages and things. Yeah. Well, they, they were trying to figure out what are we going to do with these extra pages? I guess they couldn't sell the ads they were planning on. I, I can't imagine Watchmen having ads in it because it's so anti-commercial. We'll, we'll see at one point with Rorschach and Ozymandias where he, he goes off on Ozymandias for trying to sell toys of superhero characters. But yeah, they're, they're like, okay, well, if we do letters, well, we're going to have three issues before we start getting letters for this. And so that's when they decided to just come up with back matter and have this under the hood, which was written by Hollis Mason, the original night out kind of this tell all. And we do get that. Like again, in this first issue, we're going to learn about the Minutemen, this original superhero group, you know, in under the hood. The one thing I think is interesting about the text is that at one point there were superhero comics, like Superman comics existed. It came out in 1938, just like that action comics. Number one did. And, but that's, what's influenced all these characters to dress up. Yeah, I found that to be honestly really interesting, and it hints at what's to come, but I'd say reading this back matter deepens your understanding of the universe, 
but you don't need it to understand the plot or get the symmetry out of it. It just gives you a lot more and adds a level of realism to this world. And I think reading it honestly makes some of the end revelations more obvious, you know? More is dropping clues. This entire series is a whodunit. In issue one, the comedian is murdered. In issue 11, we're going to figure out who. Yeah. I mean, and once you've read this and you go back and you read it again, then it's so obvious who the villain is. <laughs> like, because you see all those clues that he dropped along the way. But that first time I was consumed, like, with this world in this first issue and just this murder mystery. Like, I didn't know who the comedian was. I Is he the Joker? I don't know. I don't know why he's laughing or telling jokes, but I want to know why he's killed. Yeah, I'm right there with you. The first issue pulled me in and I'm like, okay. I'm doing my mental equating, and I still don't think equating Night Owl to Batman and Dr. Manhattan to Superman is wrong, because what we're dealing with are archetypes. The same impulse that created the Atom for Charlton created Superman for DC. So I think that when we sit around and we talk about now playing, oh, who came up with who first, you know? Who was the first person to have Captain Marvel? Who ripped off who? Well, it's all going back to the same stories. It's very rare that we find original characters. And so deconstructing these works no matter what comics you've read. Yeah, you could definitely read Dr. Manhattan as Superman. DC, you know, DC has this multiverse where there's, well, depending, sometimes there's 52 multiverses, sometimes there's infinite, sometimes there's one. I'm not sure where they're at right now. They're doing rebirth. So who knows? But they do have... A version of Superman, which is basically Dr. Manhattan. Was that the one after he died and came back all blue? No, 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 no. There was a time where there's red and blue electric Superman. That might be what you're thinking of, where it's crazy. I don't even want to get into it. But yeah, he in a some multiverse, there is a version of Superman that is basically Dr. Manhattan. And Earth-3, which is like this version of DC Universe where all the good guys are bad guys and all the bad guys are good guys. So like... The Joker in Earth-3 was actually a good guy, and the version of Batman in Earth-3 is the Owl. So it's not hard. And then Nick Fury was also part of the template for the comedian. So you could see, yeah, Alan Moore wanted to use these Charlton characters, but they are obviously based on other archetypes as well. So you could read this substituting these different characters in there. I'd say that if the movie hadn't been coming out, and there was so much coverage of that movie going on leading up to it online, in print, that I knew who these characters were, even if I knew nothing about the story. If I hadn't known them, I think I might have been a little bit vexed at the sheer number of characters, most of whom are main characters. I would say Ozymandias is a minor character in the amount of page time he gets. He becomes more important during the last two issues. But Night Owl, Dr. Manhattan, Silk Spectre, Rorschach, comedian even, who's dead, but he is a main character in this that you're going to have to really absorb all of this in order to get the most out of it. That's the only real challenge to reading that first issue. It gets even more complicated as it goes. Yeah, I mean, I'll say in the second issue, you go to the funeral of the comedian and you focus in on different characters and they kind of flash back and you get their history with the comedian. You haven't even got characters backstories yet, but you're going to see their history. So with Lori, you know, she's going to go visit her mom because she doesn't like the comedian. You find out the comedian tried to rape her mother. And so she's always had this dislike for him. You're going to go, you know, jump to 
Dr. Manhattan, and you're going to see him and the comedian in Vietnam. And then, again, there's they're just little stories, but they're important. They say a lot. Like when they're in Vietnam, this pregnant woman says, oh, the war's over. So you could be the father to this baby you put in me to the comedian. He knocked up this woman and he's like, now nah, forget you. She attacks him. He shoots her. And Dr. Manhattan's like, I can't believe you shot her. And he's like, well, you could have turned my bullets into steam. You could have stopped it, and you didn't. You, you're you losing your humanity. So there's all these flashbacks, and it jumps around a lot. But they're all important building pieces. They're all great character moments. I'll agree with half of it. There are great <laughs> character moments. I wouldn't say they're all important building pieces, because character moments, by their definition, are there to enrich characterization, but not necessarily to build plot. And this is where we start to, yeah, jump to nonlinear narrative and get our first look at the Minutemen from the 30s and 40s. And again, reading this in 2009, growing up in an era of Tarantino films, I thought nothing about this. I imagine at the time this would have been more unusual. You know, I really had to think back to when I was a kid in the 80s, when the 60s didn't seem like a million years ago. Like, oh, the 60s just like happened recently. Like that, now it, it feels so long ago. But yeah, I mean, they're talking about Vietnam when I don't, I, I guess in the 80s, you're getting full metal jacket and, and platoon. I mean, people had started confronting what happened in Vietnam, but this feels like that would have really fit right in with that movement. Yeah, definitely. It was probably Apocalypse Now that started it and then you know first blood and all those vietnam movies that eventually just snowballed into platoon and full metal jacket and things so yeah at this point discussing vietnam may have even been cliche <laughs> i mean we're, we're one year before michael j fox goes to vietnam with sean penn i mean we're getting pretty deep in <laughs> yes okay fair enough yeah but what it's different here is we do get this alternate universe. Like we start getting hints of that. Like Nixon is still president in 1985. And again, especially to someone in their twenties that just picked up the Watchmen because a movie's coming out and you want to read the book first. Maybe that doesn't ha quite have the impact to someone in 1985 reading about, Oh my gosh, what if Nixon was still was in the presidency and, and they had just had more of that history behind them. I mean, yeah, there are th historical moments that I might not have the impact today that they would have had when this originally came out. By the same token, I actually like this now as a period piece. To me, reading this in 2016 reminds me a lot of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which we reviewed last <laughs> week on Now Playing, where it's an olden time alternate, you know, science is more advanced than it was then, but it's still a long time ago. We're now 30 years past this. And so to have the technology as advanced as it was, ooh, electric cars that you have to plug in. Well, we got those. So it does feel to the 80s what League of Extraordinary Gentlemen felt to the late 1800s. You know, you say, do all these flashbacks build a story? I catch them this time. I didn't catch them the first read. But, you know, we have the flashback from Ozymandias. Back before the Keen Act, which was passed in 77, which outlawed vigilante superheroes. We got that mentioned in the first issue. It gets expanded on more here. We'll see Night Owl and the Comedian taking on a riot and what's going on with the Comedian there. But they try to form this group called the Crime Busters. And... The comedian's like, oh, this is all a joke. Like, the, the, we're all going to be destroyed by nuclear war anyway. He burns that map and he tells Ozymandias, if you're so smart, you figure out how to save everyone. Which, 
when I first read this, okay, whatever. But that is a key moment now, reading it a second time. Like, that's a big moment. And here it's just kind of played, oh, here's a flashback. Or you get this mention of an island later on in this issue. Like, Rorschach is going and we see really our only supervillain, I'll say. Moloch, who has some weird ears. <laughs> I, I guess kind of looks like Gollum. <laughs> yeah, some kind of elf. Yeah, and, like, there's some history there. If you read the back matter, you could get more about him and, you know, as a magician and all this stuff. But you find out that the comedian came to Moloch just before the comedian was killed, saying something about an island. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's that's weird. Let's get back to the murder mystery. But he is setting up all these little hints early on. Well, that I knew even the first read was about the murder mystery because it's Rorschach tracking him down and saying the comedian said this. So I figured that was something. As for the various flashbacks, yeah, Vietnam doesn't have a whole lot to do with much. You know, it informs us of the character. It shows us that Dr. Manhattan has started to lose his humanity 10 years before or more, you know, 15 years earlier, versus it being something out of the blue. The backstory with the rape of the first Silk Spectre by the comedian it's a natural place to put it. You're going to be recalling your events, good and bad, with a person at the time of their funeral. But to me, this was the first time we find out, hey, the comedian, he's not really a good guy. Vietnam and that both say, wait a second, we thought he was a hero. We thought all these mass people were heroes. He's a murdering rapist in Dr. Manhattan. For lack of a better term, I think he is the definition of an amoral sociopath, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, we get the flashback with Comedian and Night Owls trying to stop this riot because the police have gone on strike because they're like, superheroes, we don't want them around. They're doing our job. They're getting in the way. So they're on strike. You got Night Owl and Comedian trying to stop this riot. And like the Comedian's totally sadistic, like just shooting tear gas into the air. And he's like, it's the American dream. Like, And Night Owl's like, oh, what has gone wrong? And that's where you're, you're going to get the, the famous line. Who will watch the Watchmen? Like that, that is what this title is referring to. Like it, these people in authority, these, you know, if you had a Superman, if you had a Batman, well, who's going to police them? I mean, it, it's a famous line in Latin. Don't know the Latin, but who will watch the Watchmen? Like you, this comedian, you start to wonder that. Like, okay, maybe these guys aren't so great. Yeah. The other advantage this has is if you have a murder mystery, you can't make your clues too obvious. And on the second reading of this, I felt a lot of the clues were very obvious. And I felt like if I was more invested in this the first time I read it, I would have known pretty early on that Ozymandias was the bad guy. The fact that it became homework to me to pick this up and read more about a black <laughs> freighter is probably why I didn't do that. But if you'd only had the flashback with the formation of the Crime Busters, horrible name, by the way, even for the <laughs> 60s, I think that Zack Snyder actually improved it by making that group the Watchmen. Well, we'll, we'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah, that's it now playing tomorrow. <laughs> but if we'd only had that, it would have drawn far more attention to itself than having it interspersed with all these other flashbacks. And instead, we're just seeing moments of the comedian being an asshole <laughs> from each person's point of view. Well... I guess we should talk about that pirate comic. I mean, we could talk all about it, because in issue three, we're introduced to Tales of the Black Freighter, which is a comic within the comic. The thinking being, if there is actual adventurers, masked adventurers in the world, we wouldn't want to read about them in comics. We'd want something that's more fantastical. So I guess pirate comics are the popular thing of the day. 
Now, according to Wikipedia, so take this for what it's worth, but <laughs> Alan Moore stated in an interview, we've plotted it out and realized we have only six issues worth of story, but we sold 12. <laughs> I feel like the Black Freighter came out of that six issues of padding. What it says in the interview is they decided to intersperse it by having basically a story-driven chapter and then an origin story. So to tell the origin stories of these six characters through the various issues to help fill it out. But to me, all right, the Black Freighter is why I really didn't like this the first time. The metaphor is obvious. It is far too drawn out. This is probably the thing that made this win that award. The only graphic novel to be considered the <laughs> best of the 20th century literature. And yet I feel like this is just hammered home and to the point of ridiculousness. I will credit more that the way he intermingles the current day dialogue in with the Black Freighter stuff is very clever. But he just drags it on too much for my mind. I, I'm into this murder plot. I'm into this mystery. I think he spent too much time at this pirate comic that the first time I read it, I could see the metaphor and just didn't care. The second time, it's still drawn out way too long. I'll say this. Uh, you Whether or not Alan Moore said they sold 12 issues but only had material for six, I might tend to agree with that. Maybe 10 issues. I do feel later on in this series, it just feels like things start getting decompressed and dragged out, which started off very tight. I don't blame the pirate comic for that, though. I, I think it only appears like in three or four of the issues. It, it comes and goes. And yeah, it, it's a literary device. It's repetition. It's it's a metaphor. It's going to tell you the plot, but in a different way. So if you're not able to pick up on things, I, I guess it's going to reinforce what Alan Moore is getting with, with Ozymandias's arc, you know, the, the tell the black freighter. I, I kind of like this as a ghost story, like to tell around the campfire about this guy, you know, shipwrecked, attacked by pirates and has this raft of bloated corpses and mangled sharks and he's eating seagulls and he's driven to madness and ends up killing his family. Basically. I like some of the commentary that Moore does with the comic. Like at one point you, you have this kid who's reading it throughout the series and he's like, Oh, I didn't even get a complete story in this issue because I, you know, in the 80s, I think that's when you really started getting multi-art comics before you, most things were done in one. And so I, I felt that was a funny commentary just on comics that, especially in a 12 issue limited series where you weren't getting complete stories. But I like it overall. I, I could see that it's probably not 100% necessary, but as a literary device to kind of reinforce the themes, I guess if just one of these characters was a bad guy. I, I think that would work a bit better because you're like, okay, which one's going to be uh, like this guy in the comic? The fact that all of these characters are more or less like really kind of undesirable and have weird fetishes and, and aren't the most psychologically stable characters. It, I mean, is this comic a metaphor for every character in the book or just Ozymandias? It, it gets broad. Yeah, I even on the second reading had that question. Like, is this Rorschach? Is this Ozymandias? Is this Dr. Manhattan? I think it's supposed to be Ozymandias the whole way through. But yet I also feel especially the way it's written and the way it mirrors current 
actions in the comics at different times, it can be different people. I mean, at some points, it's just this lesbian who's there to buy a newspaper, you know? Yeah. He literally goes so far in parallels as to say, somebody woke me from my days of to remind me my duties. And then this woman comes up, can I buy a newspaper? It is it is that level of mirroring that clever I'll, I'll quote Tyler Durden. How's that working out for you, being clever? All this stuff around the newsstand, sometimes it works. You know, one of the things that originally intrigued me is like this guy that's always holding the end is nice sign. And you're going to find out, oh, that was Rorschach the whole time. Like, there, there's fun things when you go back and read it. But like all the stuff that happens around this newsstand, like it's got its moment towards the end. But yeah, the, the, this lesbian, what, taxi driver that's buying issues, a hustler and her girlfriend's mad at her. Like, it really feels padded out at times. I'll say this, though. The first time I read this, I had no idea that what we're seeing with this weird-looking guy who's holding the end is nigh signs was Rorschach. Even when you unmask him, I didn't get the revelation of, oh, it's that guy. And I think that's the problem with art, you know? If it was a person, I'd be like, oh, it's him. I definitely got it from Jackie Earl Haley in the movie because I'm like, oh, what's Jackie Earl Haley doing walking around here? Yeah. But... In the comic, when they take off his mask, his face is so distorted and everything that it wasn't until they actually cut to his apartment and show the signs that I started to link it up. And because I was reading it over the span of months, it still didn't sink home. A lot of stuff on this is actually better on a second reading because you can see what's going on there and realize the artfulness and the thought that went into it. Do you know if Moore had the whole thing plotted down to the last detail before he wrote the first issue. I know they had an arc and they had a plot, but did they have all of this worked out ahead of time? No, because he fell behind in the writing. It wasn't just, this wasn't late because of the art. It's because he was behind on the writing. Like it, it was taking too long for him to script it. At one point, the editor quit. We'll talk about it towards the end, but he had a falling out with the editor over the finale of this series. And Moore seems so good to work with. Yeah, <laughs> How could anyone I mean, have a problem? <laughs> I mean, so I think he had a good idea, but what's going to happen? You know, he probably had it outlined. This is what I want to happen in this issue and this issue and this issue. As far as what's going to happen page to page, I, I don't think he had it that detailed. I'll say this about the Black Freighter. Gibbons and Moore did a great job of reproducing those old 50s and 60s comics like I'd read some Marvel ones that were the just amazing fantasy where Spider-Man eventually premiered, but EC Comics, I've loved EC Comics ever since seeing Creepshow in the 80s. Yeah. They got that feel, they got that look, the art looks different enough, and they've really played up the halftone dots of the era, whereas the rest of it is colored. Admittedly, I'm reading on a Kindle what's obviously been digitally recolored, but in the version I read... It looks much cleaner, more full colors versus the halftone dots in the old one. So I really like what they did there. And with just the gore and the horror of it, it felt very easy. It felt like something more would be doing in Swamp Thing at the time. But I feel like the first half of the series, like issue three, the plot thickens. And I love how the plot thickens. Like, this isn't just about a murder mystery now. This is about someone getting rid of the adventurers. Like, there is a plot now to get rid of Dr. Manhattan, who is America's superpower. Like, the Russians won't attack because Dr. Manhattan is the ultimate nuclear deterrent. And all of a sudden, there's this plot that, oh, he's been giving people cancer. 
And so he exiles himself to Mars. That was something else that caught me off guard on the first reading. I thought I was reading a murder mystery where somebody killed the comedian and may come after these others. I didn't realize that I was reading a story literally about nuclear war. Despite them talking about Nixon and talking about Russians and things, I grew up in the 80s. I understood that we were being taught to hide under our school desks in case the Russians nuked us. I remember telling me that if Reagan couldn't win the presidency, because if he died, because he's so old, George Bush Sr. was just anxious to push the button and start a nuclear war. Like, the first thing he'd do if Reagan's heart stopped beating is push that button. Like, <laughs> I'm finally free to nuke the world. That's the mindset we lived in. And so seeing that setting here, it reminded me of like V for Vendetta. I thought he was making a social commentary, but it really threw me for a loop when it turns out that Dr. Manhattan, being our protector, is more than just a commentary on having a Superman, but in fact, that the true plot here is to avert nuclear war, not who killed the comedian. Yeah, that, that's going to become apparent, and I do feel like it gets ramped up, all this talk about nuclear war. Look, I was a kid during the 80s. I definitely remember my dad talking to me, oh, this is what it's like in communist Russia. And, you know, now, when I got older, I got into punk and looking at a lot of punk Back from the 80s, there's definitely like that fear and this nihilism that rose like from it. just everyone assumed we were going to be destroyed in a nuclear annihilation. And and so like there was that vibe reading it now. It does feel like is this amped up or in 85 when this is taking place? Was that really the vibe? But I guess it's a little bit different because the Cold War had kind of been put to a stop because of Dr. Manhattan. Once you remove him, all of a sudden, I mean, Russia invades Afghanistan like the next day once – Doc Manhattan disappears. It feels like we still have a Cold War, though. I mean, the Vietnam War still happened, even though we had Dr. Manhattan. It was Nixon who asked Manhattan to intervene. But the Russians are still making moves towards Afghanistan. There's still a lot of muscle flexing between the U.S. and the Russians. It's discussed how both sides have stockpiled so many nuclear weapons it's still very much a mirror of the real world 80s at the peak or at least the apex before the end of the Cold War. But yet I didn't realize that was the plot. I thought it was just more commentary on our life. And so it caught me unaware when the villain is really just the Cold War. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, though, when you're writing this, you're thinking about 1984, George Orwell, the Cold War. I, I, this is what's on your mind. If you're a political thinker like Alan Moore is, as a self-proclaimed anarchist, like this is stuff that concerns him. What do people do with power? So I can understand why this book goes in the direction it does go. And I think I like the direction it takes. I like that it starts off as this murder mystery and then... It becomes a little bit broader. It's someone actually finding reasons to get rid of all these old heroes. I'm just torn on how I feel about the way it plays out. I'm torn that in the end, it's a pretty much anti-Reagan, anti-Nixon commentary, the same way V for Vendetta was very much anti-Thatcher. And yet, the way it's told, I don't know 
that it's the most effective way to tell that story, especially when it's almost a bait and switch because issue one, hey, we're going to tell you a superhero murder mystery. Oh, no. Uh, now we're going to get into a whole lot of political commentary. <laughs> is Alan Moore even American? I thought he was British. No, no he is British. But uh, I think, you know, you have a unique perspective of America when you live outside of it, just like we would have a unique perspective of what Canada is like or what <laughs> England is like. So, I, you know, I don't think that discredits it. I, I think if you're living in another country that used to be the sole superpower and now your kingdom has come and gone and there's a new superpower and you see they have even stronger weapons, I, th there is a fear of living in the shadow of America, especially in the 80s during the Cold War, especially when you're stuck between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. I mean, so... I, I can understand, uh, again, knowing his politics, why he would want to go here. I, yeah, I, there's some commentary on Reagan and, and Cold War politics, but I think if you also look at this, like just who wants to become a superhero? Like who would be pulled towards that? I, I think there is commentary going on there. Who wants this power? Even if you think you're doing good, it, it's still a drive for power. And I think what he's getting at is that you shouldn't seek power. I, I, I feel like him as an anarchist, he doesn't want people to be cops even, much less Dr. Manhattan or Ozymandias. It creates a very dense narrative with all of the pros and cons that come with that. The pro is that there's a lot to study in here and it's saying a lot, which I can truthfully say most of the comics I read, they're popcorn. They're one and done. There's no real statement there. At best, you get entertainment. At worst, you get something greasy that doesn't end up too well. <laughs> but the con is there's so much going on that I question if somebody coming to a comic book looking for that kind of popcorn experience is going to be turned off the way I was in 09. I find this to be antithetical to entertainment. Yeah, I mean, if you're someone that likes... Same with movies, you know, Michael Bay's Transformers are not even something that dumb, but you, you like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and you sit down to watch Citizen Kane, it's, it's going to be a very different movie experience. It's the difference between pulp novels and, and literature. And so I don't want to get pretentious and say this is better than the other, but I, I think Alan Moore is going for something different than your standard comic book. And that might turn people off if they just want popcorn. I will say both times I read it, I found myself more invested in what's happening with Dr. Manhattan and with Dan and Lori, because this is the issue where she breaks up with Dr. Manhattan and she and Dan get back together. Neither have superheroed since that law passed eight years earlier, and they go and get intentionally walk down a dark alley to blow yeah. off some steam when they're quite obviously mugged and all of that's going on. This is the stuff that's truly capturing my attention because I came in expecting a deconstruction of superheroes. And so that's what I think I had my eye set on. It's still the most enjoyable part of the story for me. I think more is writing good characters. And you ask, why would someone want to be a superhero? I find that deconstruction to be interesting. I can't say when it comes to the actual superhero characters that he says anything too revelatory these days, that Dan is impotent unless he puts on the costume and he's got some kind of fetish going on there. Again, it might have really rocked the world in 85. These days, you've got Bomb Queen running around half naked, and so <laughs> it's less shocking. 
Yeah, you know, what's kind of funny is in the 50s, you had Frederick Wortham, who was a psychologist who wrote Seduction of the Innocent. I remember that guy. Yeah, which (laughs) got the comics code to happen. And like people were burning comics and saying they were turning uh, their little boys gay and that they were full turning them into criminals. Uh, It's weird. Alan Moore, because I think of his feelings for people who gravitate towards power, he kind of gets into that same puritanical territory here that, oh, if you're going to put on a costume, you're just a pervert. That's the only people that want to wear these costumes because they can't get it up any other way. It does kind of go into that territory because he is so strongly against it. And yet he was writing Constantine and Swamp Thing. I mean, he got his start doing DC Universe stuff. He also, like I said, he did that Miracle Man stuff, which was deconstructing. I, You take gigs, they're going to pay you. And sometimes you got to write the superhero, and sometimes you'll get the gig. That will let you be a little bit more critical. I, I feel like Alan Moore is the person you can always trust to bite the hand that feeds him. <laughs> yes, that's definitely his reputation now. It, it is funny, reading kind of his attitude after this came out, still in the 80s, he, he sounded very different than he does today. But what, you know, you, we talked a lot about the politics. I feel like when we get Dr. Manhattan, we get the whole issue of Dr. Manhattan on Mars after he's exiled himself. And this is like, I feel like the, the first real like backstory we're going to get. And because it's all about quantum physics, which I have a very hard time understanding. I just know they're crazy and a cat could be dead or alive in a box until you open it. Oh, yes. Good old Schroeder's cat. Yes. But I do love what I'm going to say is the poetry of this issue. Like, again, he's using repetition. He's going to talk about moments repeatedly. You know, this picture that he has of him and his old girlfriend that now has cancer. And this moment where he was going to be a watchmaker until the H-bomb fell and his dad, like, threw all the gears out the window and said, no, you got to study this new physics. This is the future, not these old watches. And like, I love this this issue. It, it could be mostly cut down to a few pages. I admit that. But I do love, I love just the beats of it. it. It feels like poetry to me, this this fourth issue. I can definitely see that. Uh, and I agree with that. It's also a very interesting origin story, the way he juxtaposes what it takes to build a clock with what it takes him to reassemble his own atoms after the experiment, you know? Like, because of his watchmaking background, he is the one person who would be able to do this out of, you know, most people would just become these atoms that float around forever. And the other interesting thing is, if you study, you know, for some reason in 2016, we still have, like, this debate about creationism going on in public education. But, you know, with creationism, there's this whole thing. Well, a watch must have a watchmaker. And I really feel Alan Moore, as an anarchist, as someone that is probably an atheist, though I I think he does, like, pray to some weird snake god. But (laughs) going against standard Christianity, like, he does create this case for the watch not having a watchmaker, even though this is all about watchmakers, it's even titled watchmaker. Like he talks about who created Dr. Manhattan, you know, his girlfriend drops her watch. It gets broken because a fat man steps on it. He goes to fix it, leaves it in this intrinsic field chamber that he gets stuck in. But is it because the watch broke? Is it because the watch was created in the first place? Was it because this fat man stepped on it? Like who created Dr. Manhattan? Who created this watch? I, I do feel like it's a very sophisticated argument, a very philosophical one as well, but poetry going on, philosophy going on. It's an issue that you probably don't need the whole thing, but I find it fascinating because of all the stuff going on in it. Yeah, I'll agree with both 
sides of that. It is kind of unnecessary and a very overblown origin story, which, as you pointed out, these days would probably take six issues to tell. <laughs> well, we'll get there at the end. We'll talk about before Watchmen. <laughs> and Dr. Manhattan being such a god creature is far less important to the plot. He'll come in at the very end, but he is, of all the main characters, the one who acts the least and while he is the most important in being the catalyst for the Russians feeling safe to attack, he's not going to aid this investigation very much that's going on. I like what they do in that I definitely think there's some forward thinking. This is the first time, I believe, that we do see Manhattan Schlong. Yes. And so there's that going on. It's, and as you say, it's not too well defined. It's you know, it is no more here than if I'm looking back at ancient Greek statues or paintings and things. It is not the focal point. It is not pornographic. It's not even titillating. It's just there. Yeah, those Greek statues, that's what they were going for. They they didn't want it to be pornographic. They wanted to remind, you know, these Greek statues of, you know, David, uh, these perfect beings and their little schlongs. <laughs> oh, poor David. <laughs> I found his origin story somewhat interesting in I like the way it hops all over time. It's really confounding in that, you know, and again, like you mentioned, the clothes really help point to when we are. Yeah, whether he's wearing a unitard or a speedo or nothing at all. But did Watchmen kill the thought bubble in comics? Because <laughs> I find it interesting. There's so much narration that occurs but it's all in this like voiceover text box versus thought bubbles. And these days, thought bubbles are evil. No comic publisher uses thought bubbles anymore. Yeah, it's a retro thing. It's something deliberate if you do it now that you want to call back to like a – I'm sure Deadpool probably uses them ironically a lot. <laughs> but yeah, I think around this time, it wasn't just Watchmen. I don't think Dark Knight Returns used thought bubbles either. Is all that – you know, that narration that, you know, with Frank Miller's all that noir, you know, uh, the rain hits my chest. I feel like a man half my age. And and here, yeah, you're going to get Rorschach's journal and just captions of what people are thinking. So I, I think it was just, again, trying to be more literary. Uh, let's get rid of those silly things that were in old comics that people uh, pointed out as being childish. Then issue five, it starts to push forward the plot in multiple ways. We also return to the Black Freighter, but I think we've talked enough about it. Yes. Let's, let's not make the mistake of the comic and talk about it every time. Yeah, I do. I do find it interesting, like as I'm writing down like plot points and notes for each issue, like pretty long for the first four. They start getting much shorter. Like I feel like maybe we're getting a little bit more fat now to push these things out. Like a lot happens in issue five, you know. Except it all mirrors each other. So it feels like we almost get it twice. Like Rorschach's going to visit Moloch and he's going to do that at the end with a, a different outcome. We're going to get this scene like with the, the cops that are investigating all this stuff, you know, and then we get all this stuff with Adrian Veidt, Ozymandias, like this attempted assassination. Uh, maybe because it wants to mirror each other, it feels like I, I'm reading everything multiple times, but I feel like it's not as tight from issue five on. I'll agree with that. I'll say that on this second reading, I was really deeply into it through issue five. And at, starting with issue six, I started to slow down my pace of reading. I'll also say in issue five, there's the one panel that I think, and admittedly, I knew the outcome when I read it the second time, so maybe not. But there's one panel that I'm like, if you are reading this and you are trying to figure out who did it, 
there's a weird line Ozymandias says at the bottom of page 16, final panel, right after he's attacked. He then says, tell the people who want to expand the toy line, I don't have any enemies. I mean, it's, it's right there. I have yeah. no enemies. This guy who just attacked me, obviously I have no enemies. I think I might have just taken it as ironic the first time, but it is almost breaking the fourth wall to go, hi, I'm uh, staged my own assassination. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if I was a very active reader when I was reading this the first time, maybe I'd figure it out. Definitely, I see it now. Having read it multiple times, I see all the hints. What I find interesting with Five, like Rorschach, I, I feel like that is the character, and we can discuss this when we talk about the film, but I feel like that is the character like a lot of people are drawn to. I love him. My favorite character. Yeah, and that's the totally wrong message, I think, according to Moore, like – Rorschach is the opposite of everything Alan Moore is, like this objectivist with his authoritarian philosophy, like, but I feel for him, like, he calls his mask his face, and he gets set up for the murder of Moloch at the end of this issue, the cops raid, I do feel like, okay, we're gonna get a comic book moment, like when the cops are raiding the building, and he's fighting him off, but I do feel bad for Rorschach when he gets tackled by the cops his mask is pulled off you see this hideous ginger underneath he's yelling my face they're like and i love the little sidebars by the cops are like wait what he's he's wearing elevator shoes platform shoes like they're they've been totally fooled by who this guy is and the fact that he stinks there have been a couple of references yes. to it earlier but he's just i mean he has a home but he seems to come off like a homeless man you know well, he eats cold beans and i don't think he ever showers or washes his clothes <laughs> i took it that he was eating the cold beans because he can't afford food he has no job he just is a vigilante but i do like him because he is perhaps the most morally straightforward character even if you don't agree with his politics because if this were taking place right now he'd be glued to fox news all day instead they have (laughs) the new frontiersman newspaper in here but he is again like the dark knight he's very much that batman who Bruce Wayne is the mask. Batman is the face. And so that he calls that his face and everything. And you're right. One thing I'm going to applaud this for is that there are so many issues. I don't know if this is a positive or negative the way I'm going to phrase it in which nothing happens. Every comic I read that's a superhero comic, there's always a fight. And sometimes I get bored. Well, you're, you're talking about an action scene. Yes. By nothing happening. Yeah. No, this is a drama. Surprisingly, it's more or less a drama. (laughs) Yeah, there are certain issues where I'm like, can't we just have a setup? There's this shoehorned fight in that's going to take up five pages when you're trying to set up a bigger story because it's obligatory. The final pages of every comic must have an action scene or a fight. Here, when we get it, though, it's so well done. I love the colors used in it to have the fire. I love his tactics that feel to me ahead of his time. I don't think everybody would have necessarily used a grappling hook as a weapon back then. The way he jumps out the window, it does feel like a Batman comic. And the fact that he loses, that's unexpected. And he's going to go to jail for his actions. Yeah, and then we switch. I I think this is done on purpose. We switch from Rorschach's journal, which is always going on, to now the psychiatrist's journal. You know, Rorschach's in jail. The psychiatrist is trying to evaluate him, doing a Rorschach test, like, which that's not what they're really used. They're they're actually supposed to use to diagnose schizophrenia. I didn't get the sense that they were going for that here, but I I get why you'd give Rorschach a Rorschach test. The, the abyss get you gaze into the abyss and the abyss gazes back. That's a line by Nietzsche. They're going to use to 
to frame the this issue six. But I, I'd like, you know, we're going to get his backstory. Why is Warshock the way he is? And I feel like, again, this is someone more would never want in the real world. But he also feels almost like the most human character, like the most, you know, he has outrage. And we spent so much time with Dr. Manhattan, who has no outrage. And the comedian, who is so amoral. And Dan Dryberg, Night Owl 2, who's nothing. He, he's an impotent wimp. Like, I, I do feel like there is a draw towards Rorschach, and, you know, he, he's got this mask that goes in the continuous Rorschach patterns, but the black and the white, they never mix. There is no gray for him. It, it's always absolutes. He does evolve, though, because also as part of those journal notes, I forget which issue it's at the end of, but some of the back matter is more of his backstory, including like a paper he wrote as a little boy about how he never met his father, but his father, he wonders if the, his father died in World War II, and how he agrees with the bombing of Hiroshima. He thinks that was the right thing to do when he's a little boy. Now, to jump ahead and spoil the ending, what we're dealing with here is Ozymandias basically bombing Hiroshima, taking an act that's going to kill millions of innocent lives for the sake of stopping a bigger war. And so while he agrees with it as a little boy, he doesn't as an adult. I feel there is an evolution there in what he considers right and wrong. Yeah, it could be an evolution. There, There's a scene that might show that. I, we'll talk about it when we get there. Or it could be, again, I feel like if the government's doing he, he could back it. Like there's certain government politicians that he did like in the past. He, he doesn't like the whores and politicians of 1985, but there was a government that he could grasp onto. Maybe he's like those people that are like, oh, America used to be great, and they, they just think fondly of the past. But yeah, I could see your way of seeing it too. There could be this evolution where he thought that was right and he's going to change, but he's never, he's always going to frame it black and white. Like, I feel like that will never change. He's always going to have this strict moral code. I want to give more some credit, though, for his writing, and I'll call it prose, even though it's like Rorschach's journal or Manhattan's narration. But lines like, the city screams like an abattoir of retarded children. Which is funny, because you had Frank Miller doing similar type writing, but he was like, serious, like, yeah, this is like great noir writing, like with Daredevil, with Dark Knight Returns. Like, I feel like Miller and Moore would not get along at all in the same room. <laughs> I would love to be there if they were in the same room, though. Fly on the wall. But also, even just minor things, like when Dr. Manhattan says is talking about the girlfriend before he turned into Dr. Manhattan, and she hands me the perspiring glass, you know? He's writing this like it's a novel, trying to bring all five senses into play. They're describing what they feel, what they smell, and then we're seeing what they see and on the page seeing what they hear. He's trying to really make it more than a lot of comic book writers I've read, including Miller, really. Yeah, and, and I think it's also he's showing what makes comics special. Like he's he's doing these things that you can only do in a comic where it's visual and there's little things you can notice in the background or you could frame things in a certain way, but put different words above it to give them different meanings. So, yeah, again, I however I feel about this story, ultimately, it is a masterfully crafted work by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. I do feel, again, I felt it even before I read. I read that more only had six issues literally minutes before we sat down to record this. But I felt like, again, this was another padding issue. The whole thing with the psychologist 
but it also serves this commentary. I kind of enjoy that the psychiatrist starts by thinking he can cure Rorschach and become famous for it. And instead Rorschach just drags him down into this level until his wife leaves him. And he just becomes this depressed person. It goes completely the opposite way. And and I do feel like more is also tapping. And you said EC comics, like those horror comics. Like I felt that too, when we got Manhattan's backstory and we see like this nervous system floating through the scientific lab. And it just reminded me of old horror comics. Like when you get Rorschach, he's telling the psychologist his backstory and, and what, when he stopped being Walter Kovac, like at some point he was Walter Kovac that dressed up as Rorschach and then he turned into just Rorschach like where that mask is his face and it was finding out about this murdered girl who was fed to the dogs and then they go full Mad Max or Saw (laughs) I don't know if you picked that up but like Rorschach finds the murderer chains him up to the furnace sets the place on fire and gives him a hacksaw and says you know can't cut through the chains fast enough try sawing off your limbs yeah Saw obviously Red Watchman the guys who made Saw or Mad Max. I mean, perhaps Alan Moore was a Mad Max fan. He, uh, that happened at the end of that original one. True, true. I also just like Rorschach in prison, though. I, I mean, the origin story is all well and good, but him in prison is a lot of fun. He's not locked up there with them. They're locked yeah. in with him. Great line. He is such a badass. I, it's impossible not to like him because he says things that are so outrageous. They're funny. And even without the mask, you know, we see Dan and without the mask, he can't get it up. That's going on pretty much in parallel here yeah. as he and Lori are starting to form a relationship or... I can't tell if Lori's just going to give him a pity lay. It's, it's really kind of hard to do. Yeah. Well, they, they go at it for a long time. Again, if, if you want to talk about patting this issue, like hours pass. And I, I probably try in the hand, probably try in her mouth. Like they <laughs> are messing around for hours and Night Owl cannot get it up. And you see that excitement earlier where he's like, oh, yeah, look at these night vision glasses where I feel like that. That stuff goes on a little bit too long. But yeah, I mean, this this is that famous moment where they try having sex and Night Owl's like, oh, I'm so impotent and he can't get it up. So they decide to take out Archie, Archimedes, his bat wing or, you know, his, his little flying owl. His Zeppelin? <laughs> Something, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is all going on. And we're now ahead into issue seven with that. But it does feel like a lot of padding and... I gotta say, I don't like Lori in this. She comes across the way he writes her, and maybe it's more... That's why I wondered if it was a pity lay, is she seems always more about herself than any of the men around her. We always see her arguing with John, so we understand they're breaking up. But when Dan starts talking about his toys and his love for owls, she's like pushing buttons and interrupting him and then watching the television, telling him to hush about his life story because there's something on the news. Yeah, I I think the art maybe doesn't serve it here. She is quite a few years younger than the rest of the characters. Like she joined the Crime Busters when she was 16. And that's when she first caught Dr. Manhattan's eye. And yeah, she's talking about how she's into Devo and Dan's like, who I I like Billie Holiday. And and yeah, so there is some years difference here and the other problem is she has this angst that you are not going to find out about until late in the book you don't know why she's so angry why she hates so many of these characters for a very long time true it just it makes her somewhat unpleasant and i'm wondering is she sleeping with dan out of obligation because she had no place to live 
The government kicks her out when Manhattan leaves. She has no home. She could go and live with her mother, but her mother is a, also an unpleasant person. She hates her mom. Yeah. <laughs> so I wasn't sure if she actually was falling for Dan. Obviously, Dan has always had a thing for her. Yeah. I, I feel like... She's looking for that human connection again. She had been with John for so long. And like, it, it is a funny scene. Like, you think she's having sex with John, and then there's like two Johns, and she's like, wait, what's going on? And you find out the real John, if there is a real John, he's like in another room doing work. And she wants that human connection. And I feel like Night Owl, Dan Dryberg, like that, that is this character that could help her feel connected again, but he's such a wimp. I, I don't know. I don't know why they get together. I don't know why there's a relationship between the two by the end of this book. And to think, I think most women would like that kind of thing. <laughs> like I said, my wife was reading this over my shoulder and she's like, wait, why is she upset about that? I want that. <laughs> I'm like, but only if I could duplicate myself, right, honey? She's like, of course. Oh, yeah. She placated you that way. I completely understand. <laughs> <laughs> my wife does the same thing. <laughs> but yeah, there's this impotency. That's why, to go back, I like Rorschach. You take away his mask and he's calling it his face, but he's still Rorschach without that mask, whereas Dan is nobody without his. Well, and I think that is the irony. Like, if you look at that issue after Rorschach keeps talking about his face, you keep getting the reflection of Dan through the goggles of that Night Owl costume. Like, it, it's almost as if that costume is glaring at him throughout that entire issue. I, I feel like that's the irony. Like, Rorschach, he, he's got something behind that mask, whereas Dan doesn't. He is the mask. Like, it, you you take Night Owl away and he's no one. Rorschach, he, he's going to have a great rant to give you if you take away his mask. By the same token, though, to go back to the themes of the comic, I don't know if Dan would always have been impotent, but in the face of Armageddon, you know, that can't help the sexual mood. You know, if all the news is talking about is you're all going to die. You do get this telling dream that he has. You know, there is the Twilight Lady, this like dominatrix. I assume she was a villain. Uh, when I get to pre-Watchmen, uh, maybe that assumption wasn't correct, but I thought it was like this villain she would, he would chase around and she, you know, sexy black leather or whatever that he had autographed the, this photo by her. And it feels like that is what he was into. Like that gave him this thrill, this, you know, you find out he was an orphan. It, he's very much like Bruce Wayne, like had this trust fund when his parents died and started building all this tech. Like, so he has this dream about the Twilight Lady. And, you know, he, they're making out. He rips her skin off. It's Lori underneath. He's wearing the night owl uniform. She rips that off. They're naked. They're kissing. The A-bomb goes off. Like, that feels like that is that moment. Like, yeah, he could get it up, even in nuclear annihilation, if, if they're wearing those costumes. Well, I love that he's standing there naked with Lori, and then they take off their skins, and it's the costumes underneath. I mean, there there is something connected to... That costume that he can't get away from. I, I don't. I don't think it is nuclear annihilation. I, I think. I mean, we'll see. They'll they'll take Archie out and they'll stop a fire. And and again, it's so funny. Is that you know they find this fire. There, there's a line earlier where like these apartment buildings have been getting burned down. You know, gentrification. Something's going on. They rescue some tenants. Lori's serving them coffee on on this weird little owl ship that he has. It, it's almost. 
very unheroic. Like it, it's like, oh, we dropped down the door. They ran in. We served him coffee. We dropped him off on another roof. But it gets him hot. Like he's able to get it up after that. Well, and Lori again isn't the greatest because there's somebody who's afraid to walk into the ship, and she's like, "Get on her! I'm going to throw you over." I mean, that's, yeah, I know. <laughs> that's not exactly the greatest way to save people in a fire, but that does lead us into issue eight, where they're going to decide to spring Rorschach. And he's in jail and still being a badass, catching people on fire with the burning fat and a little person, crime lord. Yeah, big figure. Yeah. (laughs) Is coming after him. Although I want to call out that issue before we start talking about the plot. Had a page, six panels of the nine on a page 11, that I'm like, what the hell happened here? What am I looking at? A woman drawing a vaginal squid? Well, that's, yeah, you've gotten these, like, panels now, and then, like, there's a shot of a newspaper, like, writer gone missing. And there's a lot of it in the back matter. Yeah, yeah, in the back matter, there's more. Yeah, but you get this whole scene where they're like, oh, yeah, they let me draw it before they covered it up. And, yeah, I remember being so confused when I first read this. I'm like, wait, what was that all about? Because I'm reading all the back matter and everything, I actually flipped back to all of it. I'm like, is this the guy who was the acclaimed one writing the Black Freighter? Because there's a lot of back matter about the Black Freighter. Yeah, the writer for the Black Freighter is one of those kidnapped writers. I thought this might be the guy, and this was his new cartoonist, and she was doing a panel for a new cartoon. I was trying to figure all that out. The backstory of the Black Freighter actually is kind of cool to try to understand in what context that story would be told. But yeah, that six panels there is A, I think that squid looks like it has an anus, and B, <laughs> it was that... I spent probably five minutes going back through the comic to find out if I was supposed to really know who this guy was. They don't really even say his name. They talk about the artist, Miss Manish, but his name was Mr. Shea, and it's only said once in the whole thing. And so I had to go back through and try to find Shea and where it all tied in. But clues that bigger things are happening. Yeah. And again, it is somewhat confusing the first time you read it. I I know I was confused and I kind of just skipped over it. I'm like, okay, I'm sure that will get explained at some point. I think I did too the first time I was reading this. I probably had my fill of Black Freighter. I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Now I know about the squid at the end. I realized what I was seeing was really important, but it still is out of nowhere. And this issue, I mean, after you get that, I mean, this feels like if you want that comic book popcorn, this is the issue to read. I feel like you you get this whole prison scene, even though there's not like that much fighting, like Night Owl and Silk Spectre go to rescue Rorschach. They don't have like big fight scenes. They like land their ship there and run in to find him. And Rorschach's already free and he's going after big figure. You you, you get this implied killing a big figure in, in the bathroom. It is funny, though, like, oh, man, I can't believe he's got to go to the bathroom now. And like Dan's like, oh, yeah, I remember this happening one time when I was chasing someone. So now I made it. So that's no longer a problem. So I'm like, what is he pissing in a suit right now? And he's got like some <laughs> mechanism there. Like th- there's funny things there. But it's like I feel like if this was a Marvel or a DC proper comic, you know, there would have been all these splash pages and fights. But it, even this, which is the biggest probably action scene, feels very toned down. I'll agree. I do like that the reason that Night Owl and Silk Spectre here don't have a fight is because his ship emits this horrible noise. And if you read the back matter, there's a ornithological article he wrote about when he was walking (laughs) out from a hospital and was petrified by the sound of an owl. So it ties together. But yeah, 
it doesn't exactly show them to be badasses, whereas Rorschach, in the middle of a prison riot, is getting his revenge. I do feel like this is a return to some of those earlier issues where there's a, a lot more going on. I, I don't feel like this is so padded because you get this prison break. You find out that the police are suspecting Dan as being Night Owl after they rescued the tenants from the fire. Like they come to him and kind of started questioning him. They free Walter. They they take him back to Dan's place. Dr. Manhattan shows up. He takes Lori. The, the cops are kicking down the door. They got to hurry and escape. You got the death of Hollis, which I don't feel ever really pays out. Like these not top punks, this gang, like they hear, oh yeah, it was Night Owl. And one of them's like, oh yeah, I know Night Owl. He's this old guy that owns this auto repair shop. So they go and they kill him. Uh, there's a scene later on where Night Owl 2 finds out, but I don't know if that ever really pays off it's just like kind of gets forgotten yeah i i agree there's not a ton of payoff for that it it feels again like more filler and also tying up some loose ends yeah because this is where i mean we're, we're headed towards the end of the story the conclusion i mean we're gonna get john has come and taken laurie to mars and they're gonna have this big debate if Dr. Manhattan should save the Earth. For some reason, he can't see the future like he normally can. And he's guessing that's because of nuclear devastation. And she's got to convince him humanity's worth saving. This is where we're going to get really Lori's backstory, like the big reveal of who her father is. Yeah, I feel sad that Lori doesn't have much of a backstory. Lori's entire crux of her backstory is about her parentage. That's part of the reason why I think I have trouble relating to her. She's not much of a character. Everybody else had an active reason for becoming a hero. She was forced to. She's always been a little bratty about it, even though now she's dressing up with Dan and doing it. And her mother's like, maybe now she'll finally say thank you. But the fact that this whole thing about her mother was almost raped by the comedian and then decided at a different point of tenderness to sleep with the comedian and the comedian's her father. It's just kind of sad to me that Lori's only purpose is that a sperm hit the right egg and that's going to convince Dr. Manhattan, hey, the world's worth something. Yeah, I don't know how convincing the the art. And she doesn't even make the argument. Like, Dr. Manhattan really makes it. Maybe that's, you know, a subliminal way of showing that Dr. Manhattan was showing an interest. Like, he forced this reason because he makes a great argument for not being interested in life on Earth. Like, when he's talking about Mars and, like, all this great geography on there that I knew nothing about and how it gets along just fine without strip malls and people, like, he's got some good arguments. And the whole argument comes down to, oh, people are miracles because for a person to get made, like, one sperm out of millions has to win. And for Lori, it wasn't just that. It was that two people had to come together, even though they hated each other. And that as some, everyone's a miracle. Like, we, we miss out on that. Like, John makes this argument. Like, Lori stands around and argues with him and cries. But he's the one that makes both arguments. And I, I kind of feel his first one's a little bit stronger. Yeah. I mean, he's looking at a galactic perspective. Atoms persist. You know, if you go to Einstein... Matter can never be created or destroyed, only transformed. And so he's looking at it at that level. And I like the line that humanity will be wiped out and the galaxy won't even notice. But that at the end, he kind of goes on. It almost felt like a sermon yeah. about how the world is full of miracles. Everybody's a miracle. It's, you know, and 
I don't know if they really discussed intelligent design much in the 80s. I know I didn't hear about it till the 21st century and the flying spaghetti monster. <laughs> but it seems like the impetus appears to be he's pushing for intelligent design and Lori calls it a stupid design. Again, that's why I don't know. Moore did his research from what I can tell from all the DVD bonus features. Oh, yeah. He studied science and he studied philosophy and he studied history to make sure all his references were as close as possible. So if intelligent design were being discussed back then, that she says stupid design would possibly be an intentional thing. It wouldn't be coincidence. But yeah, I agree. I don't think she does a good job of framing her argument. And this is the issue where she needed to have her heroic moment, not just break down, cry and realize that her mother forgave, at least briefly, her rapist. I will credit the comic this. I could see a lot of people in today's Twitterverse being very upset that this comic shows a quote unquote hero who tries to rape a person and then the woman later going back and voluntarily sleeping with him. And if you read the back matter, it talks about how maybe she kind of wanted it a little. I'll flip that script though and say, this seems like from what I understand, a very realistic portrayal of a rape victim and the conflicting emotions that they undergo and how they can blame themselves and say, maybe I was asking for it, et cetera, et cetera. So that they take that and try to humanize it, I think gives Sally Jupiter a lot more depth than we ever get for Lori Jupiter. Yeah, I mean, whether it's something you want to justify or not in this comic, it's here. That's part of the story. I do feel like it does serve Sally Jupiter, the mother's character, her story. She is someone in her old age that is obsessed with nostalgia. And there's even Adrian Veidt has a perfume called Nostalgia that you see commercials for. And in this issue, Lori even has a bottle of it that she destroys John's clockwork castle that he made on Mars with by throwing it at it. I mean, there is this whole thing about nostalgia. Maybe Moore is criticizing nostalgia by taking these horrific things and people are looking back on them and they're like, oh, it wasn't so bad. You know, you just you don't understand. There's that line by Sally, you know, the the older you get, the, the more fondly you look back on the past, no matter how bad it was. And, and so um, he could be commenting on people with that sense of nostalgia, which used to be treated as a mental disease. Like nostalgia isn't a good thing always. So uh, here is a way to criticize that. And I, I don't think it's right to get caught up on that. Oh, it's showing that this person had a relationship with their rapist. I, I think the way Moore approaches it, he doesn't use it as an exploitation thing. He, he's trying to say something with it, which is okay to do. Yeah, I agree completely. The nostalgia thing, it's obvious that it's all over the place. I couldn't quite tie it the way you did, so thanks for crystallizing it. I'm like, well, there's a nostalgia everywhere, and to me, 1985 is nostalgic. Yeah. So <laughs> I was looking at it again through the prism of modern day, not realizing that as she says in the second issue when discussing the comedian's death, that things get complicated and earlier life looks better and the future looks darker. But then I feel like it's like, oh, we got to get to 12 issues. Okay, let's have an issue where Rorschach and Night Owl, they're going to investigate, like, who's trying to get rid of the adventurers, the masks. And there's this whole thing about 
pyramid industries and companies with subsidiaries. It all goes to Vite eventually. Like, it's just, I remember the first time reading this, I'm like, I, I don't know what's going on. Parent companies, I don't understand this. I understand this stuff a little bit better now. Didn't understand it then, but uh, it, it loses uh, something in the minutia here. I think this climax is overly drawn out. It's like three issues starting with 10 yeah. where they're going to finally focus on the plot. You know, they had to get to here. He's made his statements, but now he has to end the story. There's a lot more Black Freighter that's going to start coming in at this point, too. They're going to find out Ozymandias did it in issue 10, which I really think once we find out Pyramid International hired someone to kill Ozymandias, that was on my first reading where I'm like, oh, he faked his own assassination. Pyramid, the guy's only talked about Egypt every panel yes. he's been in. My wife picked up on this reading it over my shoulder. And it's her <laughs> first time reading it. Like, she's like, oh, yeah, it's him. I mean, I, I do like they're trying to hack into his computer and they just guess it the first time. Ramsey, too. It, it's a weird prop. Like, they put in Ramsey first, which is, <laughs> I, was, I, I guess. I was so thinking that. That, like, is his password yeah. incomplete? I'm like, no, yeah. don't do that. That's bad. Yeah, why, would you, why would you say that? It's not even it's... taking uppercase and lowercase letters. It's obviously an insecure password to begin with. Yeah, I mean, sure, that, that was a new thing then, but I don't think I ever saw something that said password incomplete and you had to just put in a couple more letters. It was 1985. I can't remember if maybe they actually did that. That was, that was the oddest question I walked away with is, were they really so insecure as to say, you're close? Yeah, <laughs> seems the opposite of what you want to do with computer security. But I'm like, I just want to get to Antarctica. And we do get that, like Rorschach. And Night Owl, they, they finally figure out what's going on. They figure out it's Adrian. They got to question him and they got to go to Antarctica to do that. Seems like they get there really fast, but maybe that Archimedes flies fast. Well, you know, it's a comic book. He's got a big ship. I, I'll go with that. I don't even know how much time really passes. We start on October 12th, 1985, and it ends November... Second, I believe. November 1st or 2nd, 1985. So it's less than a month passes during this whole story. Right. I, I suppose when you said really quick, I was thinking hours. I'm like, a day could have passed. It would have just been hours because they make a big point. Like they leave. Well, it's the first when Lori gets zapped by John to go to Mars. But regardless, I'm just glad we get there. Like, And we get like backstory for Ozymandias at this point, which I, I don't really care about him as a character. Like he's been in so little of this. And it's not a huge backstory, but I just don't, I'm not that invested in him. No, I think there needed to be more Ozymandias because we have so much more of everyone else. When we were going through the cast, I said he's the most minor of the majors and he is. I only call him a major because he's the killer. He's the bad guy, but he's the one we know least about. He's called the smartest man on earth. Is this genetic? Does he work hard at it? Why is he the smartest man on earth? Is he almost magical like Dr. Manhattan? The fact that he can see all of this, no genius is smarter than their author in fiction. And so that he can deduce all of this happening is awesome. I do like that he buys pornography stock because he yes. realizes people have a lot of sex during times of crises and then kills nostalgia for a futuristic one, knowing that they're going to have a positive outlook on the future pretty soon. I, I like his investment strategy. Yeah, I mean, th there are things that are interesting, like when you see he watches like all these TVs that change 
every few seconds. And it's, you know, if you've ever read William S. Burroughs, you know about this cut up method where you just mix all the words up and you're looking for subliminal patterns that pop up. Like all this stuff is interesting, but by this point, I get it. I, 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 I want the story to move on. I, I don't want any more philosophical explorations by this point. I, I'm ready for it to end. Uh, yeah, there's so much text on every page that I feel like this climax could have been one issue instead of two, and they could have wrapped up the Black Freighter a bit earlier. What I do love about this issue 11, like this is probably one of the most famous things about Watchmen, Ozymandias tells the whole plot, he monologues, he tells Night Owl and Rorschach what he's going to do, he's going to fake this alien invasion in New York that's going to kill half the city, and that is going to unite the world because we got to unite to fight the aliens instead of each other. And they're like, oh, we, we just got to stop you now. And I do love that. He's like, what do you think I am? A, in the comic, he says a movie villain. They reverse that for the movie. But, you know, what do you think I am? A, a, some kind of, you know, movie villain? I did it 35 minutes ago. I do love that reveal because that is so the opposite of what you traditionally got in comics where you stop the bomb with one second to go. And... That damn newspaper guy is killed along with the boy who read the comic. It's so sweet when they're like hugging each other when you see that blo- like that. That is a moment that gets me like you do have this whole scene where like the two lesbians are beating each other up and the psychiatrist is trying to stop him. And then the police show up like everyone shows up at this newsstand right before the end of the world, which is weird. I'm not quite I, I don't know what Moore is trying to do there because if I thought at first, oh, they're going to come together and help each other, then they're all going to die. But it, you, you don't quite know they're still in conflict. But yeah, when you get that, that kid that's reading the comic the whole time time in the newspaper salesman like hugging as you see that blast it gets me it is kind of sweet as i the newspaper salesman is actually one of my favorite minor characters because he starts <laughs> off it's every man for himself but the yeah. more the war comes he's like keep the comic we got to help each other out he has actually the most character arc of anyone in this book <laughs> i mean everybody really does they may have different attitudes and they may go back to heroing but it's not like at the end of this book, Dan isn't still driven by his Night Owl persona. Yeah, he's still putting on his, like, Arctic snow outfit. Like, I love yeah. that he has these different outfits, like the toys would. Yes, it is. That was great. That's where I really thought Batman 66. He probably had shark repellent spray <laughs> somewhere on there. But this climax is stolen. It is stolen from an episode of The Outer Limits, where, like, an alien does, like, attack... And the world unites because we got to unite to fight them. And, and, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, basically. Like, and Len Wein or Len Wine, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. The editor, like, stopped because Alan Moore refused to change this. He's like, no, you got to challenge yourself. You got to do something different. You can't rip off this episode of The Outer Limits. And Alan Moore refused. And so the editor quit. (laughs) Maybe that's why, you know, this wasn't like... With the last issue, this is once he realized where he was going. So maybe that's why things seem a little bit more bloated towards the end of this. He was a very good editor. He kept he, it tight. Yeah, they're, they're, they they had to use a secondary editor at this point, an assistant editor. We're going to discuss the movie tomorrow at Now Playing. I don't want to go too deep into it, but I'm actually going to say I like Snyder's way of handling this better. And we'll talk about that through, but... I'm sure that would be a debate tomorrow. I'm going to say I like this ending. Again, I'm reading this as a comic about comic books, about the history of comic books. To have this alien that was always the villain in like 50s and 60s comics before they got started getting dark and serious, like that the aliens win. I I just like that irony. 
So I, that's why I go, like the fact, the, the one thing that bugs me, <laughs> like, okay, I, I get it. Like Adrian, he could do genetically modifying things. That's why he has this weird tiger that's running around with these big, I don't know, bunny ears or something. I thought they were horns. Horns. Yeah. They look furry. So I was never quite able to tell what they were, but we know he could genetically modify stuff. So I get it that he could have made this like squid alien. The one thing that bothered me was like, Oh, we took the brain of a psychic and recreated that to put in this alien and then filled it with horrible stories and pictures. So other psychics would get these horrible visions and that this attack would last for decades in their minds. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Okay, I get Dr. Manhattan. Like, okay, we gave him superpowers. But now we got psychics that are actually, like, psychic? Yeah, and does the squid actually attack? Because I thought the squid was just dead. I thought it was just, like, I couldn't get from the art. It's like they just teleported a dead squid into New York and it crashed on stuff. That is what it is. They teleported New York, and that's why, like, it's it's tentacles or whatever, like some of them are just like embedded in the cement because it just like appeared. It was that psychic brain that they put in it that like gave off this blast that killed people. It, it's, it's weird. I don't know why you couldn't just say, Hey, teleporting this thing. Cause we see that with John, whenever he teleports Lori, she like pukes. So they could have just said it was something similar to that. Like just the energy that they had to use to do it killed people. I don't know why they had to come up with the psychic brain. Yeah, the last issue's actually, it's a real cock block. I feel like Dan trying to have sex with Lori when I'm reading this last issue. It's like, this should be the climactic moment. I'm like, psychics? Squids? The only thing I like is the moral questioning of, was this the right thing to do? Obviously, more through the Black Freighter is saying it's not. That Ozymandias is a madman who's killing those he loves for this because he thinks he's saving the world. But Dr. Manhattan sides with him. I mean, poor Rorschach gets annihilated by Dr. Manhattan. And here's the thing. I wonder if Rorschach even agrees with them. You know, he runs off. He's like, you know, even in the face of Armageddon, I will not compromise. And he storms off into the snow. You don't even know how he's going to get back to anywhere like this. He and Night Owl used to be friends. I wonder if he could fly Archimedes. Yeah, maybe. But Archimedes is like all frozen up and they had some issues and had a crash landing there. But John appears and he's like, I can't let you do that. I I, I hear it in, in the Hal voice. I'm sorry, Dave. <laughs> but John like confronts him and Rorschach, he like pulls off his mask and he's like, do it, do it. I feel like he's almost begging to be killed because maybe he even believes that that's the right thing. And that's why I'm saying maybe this is why he's still consistent with his beliefs about the bombing of Hiroshima. Maybe he believes it's the right thing, but because of his moral code, it is so ingrained he can never admit that. And he's almost begging for death at this point from Dr. Manhattan. It's one way to read it. That is a very interesting reading that I never got out of it. That I really enjoy. I actually get it more from the movie than I get it from the comic and the actor's portrayal in the movie. So that that's when I first actually thought of that. But it ends on some ominous notes. I mean, after killing Rorschach, Manhattan visits Ozymandias and he's like, well, it all worked out in the end. And Manhattan's like, well, nothing ever ends. Yeah. And then Rorschach's journal is out there telling the story as much as they even killed Rorschach to cover up their lie. It's out there and that fat guy at the newspaper with the ketchup on his shirt may figure it all out. Yep. I remember the first time I read this, like, I'm like, oh, but maybe they did do the right thing. I struggled with it more now, you know, knowing 
where Moore is coming from. I, I don't think it's meant to be a struggle. I, I think he's meaning to go like, look, guys, this is horrible stuff. This is why you don't go after power. This is why power is bad and governments are bad. But when I first read it, and I think a lot of people when they read it, if you don't know Moore's background, you do have that struggle of what did Ozymandias do the right thing? And Laurie, Dan, and John, they're all complicit with it. They all agree to be quiet about it. I don't know. I always go back to Spock from Wrath of Khan. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And if the world was teetering on the brink of global annihilation, then yeah. (laughs) It's troubling to say the least. And maybe that's the point is when we live in the state of possible nuclear annihilation, like these are games, you know, war games that we don't want to play. Like there are not easy answers and it's troubling. And how did we get ourselves to this point? There's probably not an answer, a right answer to how to interpret this ending. Well, for me overall, I think Watchmen is a very good read. Coming back to it the second time, I found so much more to appreciate than the first time. That said, I do have real issues with the pacing, as I've pointed out, and I think it's overly long. I think if Moore had realized they sold 12 issues, but they had enough material for six, and he went, so why don't we come up with another idea and do a second six-issue miniseries instead? We might have really had something really tight that I could have appreciated. As it is, it's the opposite of what we're talking about, where it takes three pages to go down a flight of stairs, because it may take three pages now to go down a flight of stairs, but you flip past them quickly. Here, (laughs) when this drags, it's going to drag for a long time. There's a lot of text, Yeah. yeah. There's a hell of a lot of text. And so anything that doesn't work for you, if you don't like the Black Freighter or you don't like the fact that they have all these people on this island and then they put them on a boat and kill them all. I know some of them helped with the experiment. Did all of them? Well, some of them wrote stories and drew pictures to put into this psychic's brain. It, it, it's very confusing. It's taken me three times to really try to understand what they were all doing on that island. Because at first I thought it was like going to be a Kingsman thing where Ozymandias was bringing his favorite comic book writer and scientists and things <laughs> to an island so they would live. And then I, he kills them all. And I'm just like, oh, well, I still don't get what he was doing with that. But I think there's a lot of great ideas here. That said, I do think that it has been aped so much that the impact is dulled on me now. And that these days, with the era of the superhero in cinemas, I think superheroes are now more popular than they've been ever. I mean, if Deadpool's making $600 million, we're in the heart of superhero phenomena. I think a new deconstruction could even one-up Watchmen. Well, it's funny. I mean... I'll jump ahead and then go back a little bit. Last year, there was a miniseries by Grant Morrison from DC called Multiversity, where it was jumping through alternate DC universes. I talked about that a little bit earlier. There was this like threat to the whole multiverse and all these different versions of Superman and different superheroes were called together to to fight this threat across the multiverse. And each issue took place in like a different one of these universes. He did an issue... And it's too bad it was tied into this series because it almost stands alone. But he did an issue called Pax Americana, which is deconstructing Watchmen. Grant Morrison is a critic of Alan Moore. They kind of have a rivalry. So he's like, oh, I wanted to do like the better version of Watchmen. He only has an issue to do it. But he's able to use those original charlatan characters' names. So, you know, instead of the comedian, you actually have Peacemaker. Instead of Rorschach, you actually have The Question. 
And so he he does this whole deconstruction of a deconstruction. It, it gets very interesting. Like Rorschach, he works on a or the question as he is in this issue, he works on a color spectrum instead of just black and white. He's he's got a whole color spectrum he works on. The Doctor Manhattan character, like at one point, he's deconstructing a dog to find out why why do people love pets and like. Then the dog dies when he like takes it all apart. This whole criticism that maybe we shouldn't deconstruct everything. Maybe we lose the joy of comics when we deconstruct them. So it worked as a criticism towards Watchmen while alluding to all these Watchmen characters. Huh. So do you think I should seek that out knowing how I feel about Watchmen? <laughs> I, no, I, 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 it's even more dense <laughs> than these 12 issues. It, it, it would probably come off as very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be honest, like unless you you understand Grant Morrison's other work and read a lot of his stuff, because he's he's kind of out there with his ideas, it's hard to get into. Even having read it a couple of times now, it's so dense. And there, it, like the issue is meant to, you know, we talked about William S. Burroughs and that cut up method. Like he writes the issue so you could just read it in any order you want. So it's it would be a, a piece of homework. I think you'd find it <laughs> just to be honest. Well, what I did. Almost read, but time got away from me, and I have better things to do, like work on the Dead Zone books and nachos, <laughs> is before Watchmen. Man, that was a brouhaha when they did that. Which, I don't understand why that wasn't 2009 when the movie came out. They, this was 2012 they announced before Watchmen. I don't know why they didn't capitalize on the movie, because we'll, we'll talk about the legacy of that movie. I don't think it was the hot thing in 2012, I'll say that. No, but I think it did bring people like me to Watchmen, the comic, if nothing else. And I also felt like around that time, DC was kind of flailing. They were just about to do their new 52, which would put them at the top of the charts. Gimmicks are kind of the thing in comics right now. I don't know if maybe it's always been that way. But I understand that they did try to get more back. And maybe part of it was just delays, hoping that more would return. They offered to give him the rights back to all of this if he would write that prequel. And he'd wanted those rights for a long time, but he didn't like the conditions and basically told them where they could stick it. Yeah, well, look, th th there is a long history of more falling out with DC and a Watchmen is a big part of that. I mean, when the, after this first came out in my absolute edition, it has stuff that Moore wrote for the 1998, like hardcover premiere edition. Like that, that was so rare back then for a comic. Like, and he was still fairly positive and like he had ideas. Oh, maybe I could do a Minuteman story or maybe even a sequel. He's like, I got some ideas. You know, you talked about making this six and using the other six issues for another story. It sounds like he had ideas and there was a DC heroes role playing game. That included the Watchmen characters. It actually came out before the series ever ended because it was running late and it, it expanded on their story. So there, at one point, more was open to the idea. And then he had a following out. From my understanding, it's that DC said he could have all the characters back. He could have the rights to Watchmen back once they stopped publishing it. And they've never stopped publishing it. Now, Moore says that's to screw them over. I say, well, if it's one of your best-selling items ever, why would you stop publishing it? Like, so I feel like Moore, if that is the story, he's being a little disingenuous about DC ripping him off because it was such a success, they haven't stopped publishing it. There's always been an addition of Watchmen to buy. But yeah, in 2012, they did a bunch of before Watchmen prequels. And they got big writers. They got big artists to do these series. Yeah, I know they got Adam Hughes to do some of it. Yeah, and... he did a Dr. Manhattan 
prequel. He was the artist for it, at least. But yeah, Adam Hughes, Amanda Connor, Darwin Cook, big names. Yeah, it seemed like they were doing the best they could to bring the top talent if they couldn't get more back. And my feeling was... When I saw the uproar that this is blasphemy, that you're going to tell this story without Alan Moore, well, they tell Spider-Man stories without Stan Lee, you know? It's like, it's not going to change the past to have something new, but could it possibly live up, or was it even necessary? Probably not, but I like Rorschach, and I like Night Owl. I'd be interested in reading further adventures, even if they were in the past. I've read it all. I read all the Before Watchmen stuff. I never wanted to. I did it just for this podcast. And it's a lot. Like, every character has a four to six issue series. They did one for the Minutemen. Dollar Bill, I think he got a panel in the comic. He gets an issue. Moloch gets a couple of issues. They do a prequel comic to that pirate comic you hated. They do something called The Curse of the Crimson Corsair. They never finished it. Like, that's the weird thing. They never did the final issue of all this before Watchmen stuff. But it started off selling strong. I mean, it, the the first four miniseries, the first issues, broke the 100,000 mark, which is good for comics these days. Uh, I think it kind of just fizzled out. But I don't think you're going to learn much new. Like, a lot of the stuff... You, you, Arnie, you read the big events today. I don't know if you read Fear Itself, which was a Marvel event a few years back. I read all the ads for it. Nothing called drew me in. <laughs> I, I was into it. Matt Fraction was writing it. Big fan of his stuff. So I thought I'd check it out. Like, what's so maddening with big events these days with DC and Marvel is that it's not just six issues or ten issues. It's 150 issues. You know, I'm, when we get to Civil War, Captain America Civil War, I'm sure you'll talk about the 300 issues of Civil War that you've read for every character. And, and that's... You know, the problem with Fear itself was, like, I felt like I was getting the bare minimum story, and if I wanted to know what was really going on, I had to read all these side series. And that that bugs me. If I, I just should be able to just read the main event. And with Watchmen, I feel like I get the main event, at least. But with these all these miniseries, like, it's like, oh, here's what happens in between scenes. Like, the Dr. Manhattan before Watchmen is basically like, oh, here they try to do the whole series, like that issue four where he's jumping through time in quantum physics. And I've seen every possibility. I've seen the possibility if I didn't become Dr. Manhattan and every possibility ends in nuclear war. And so the, it, the series ends with him telling Ozymandias, you need to solve this problem. I'm like, well, in Watchmen, we saw where Ozymandias got that idea when comedian burned the map and told him he's the smartest person in the world. Figure it out. Like, I did not learn anything new from this. And that's, it goes from learning to nothing new to just being filler stories. Like Rorschach, if you want to hear a random story in the 70s about Rorschach, there's four issues for you to read. I find the only one that was somewhat interesting was the Minutemen one. And Moore said he had ideas to do a Minutemen series. Darwin Cook does the writing and the art. He's the perfect choice for the Minutemen because his art style has that very 50s, 60s style of of comic book art when you look at it. And that one's somewhat interesting. You find a whole lot more about Hooded Justice. Things go in a very weird direction with him where you find out Hollis probably made up a lot of stuff and actually made people look better than they should have looked in Under the Hood. I have one question about Hooded Justice. Yes, he's gay. I knew that. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was in the back matter. 
But what was also in the back matter is he might have been a communist bodybuilder at the circus who was killed by the Russians when his communism was about to be found out. Was he a commie? From my understanding, because this thing jumps around a lot, like there's a whole side plot about stopping the Japanese from setting off a nuclear device in New York. Like, my understanding is, yes, he did work for the circus. He was actually a former Nazi or at least a German with Nazi ties. I don't want to spoil it if someone wants to read it. Like, he's he's actually... It kind of ruined the character for me. I kind of liked the justice and Minutemen cast him in a very dark light. Darwin Cook does not stop from going dark. You know, I feel like almost darker than Watchmen ever did. He did. He wrote the Silk Spectre too. Amanda Connor did the artwork. I like that one probably because Amanda Connor's artwork is just so great. If you've seen her like Harley Quinn stuff. Oh yeah. Love that stuff. I, I love her style. Yeah, it, it so it looks good. It's basically, oh, here's Silk Spectre 2's story before she went to that meeting with the crime busters. Like, she runs away, goes to San Francisco, fights crime in the hippie movement. You find out, like, the comedian, like, kills her boyfriend, so she won't stay there. But, again, I guess interesting notes about their past, but nothing that feels vital. Like, I read Watchmen, and yes, there's times where I agree with you that it feels like... Uh, this is floundering. This, this is treading water. But I read that and like I feel like I got everything I need. And this before Watchmen stuff, it's at best filler. Like uh, Dollar Bill, I don't need a backstory from him. I didn't learn anything about him. Moloch, his was kind of interesting just because we don't hear a whole lot about villains. But ultimately, like, oh, you find out, yes, we know he was hired by Ozymandias. But here in the comic, they make it like they're working one-on-one together. I thought the whole point was he didn't know he was hired by Ozymandias, but <laughs> like you find out how he gets cancer working for Pyramid Industries. Like if that's a question that's burning in your soul, you could read that. But I I found all of it at best was filler. The one that I was most drawn to was probably Rorschach to see if he had another like fun, moral, high ground adventure. If you want to find out the origins of his "the end is nigh" sign, read that. You you find all out. You find all about that sign in that series. So I'll skip it. <laughs> yes, the sign. I was I was more drawn to the newspaper seller than the sign. Yeah. I'm surprised though that in the cash grab they didn't do before Watchmen the newspaper seller and the kid who reads comics next to him. Yeah, oh, I, 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 yeah, if they're going to do dollar bill, why not? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> when you told me they did a dollar bill one, I would just like slap my forehead literally. Yeah. I, I mean, Night Owl is mostly, you might like that one better than the Rorschach. That's basically a Night Owl Rorschach team up book. You get a lot of stuff about the Twilight Lady that you see that photo of and that he dreams about. You, there, there's some kinky stuff going on in that. And then the comedian one was weird because it's heavily implied in Watchmen. That he killed JFK. Like, he was in Dallas when JFK died. He makes a joke about it. Yeah, this goes against that. He is friends with JFK. He's such good friends with the Kennedys that he kills Marilyn Monroe. So she'll stop sleeping with JFK at Jackie's behest. Like, that's how in with the Kennedys he is. He does end up killing Robert Kennedy after, like, tripping on acid and Nam, but it... It's just a mess. It's, I, I don't feel like I learned any more about these characters from reading before Watchmen. And they just never finished it. That's what I find the most funny is this big initiative and they left one issue undone. 
Yeah, and that's because it was supposed to be with that pirate comic. Like, they were two pages at the end of, like, random issues, or maybe every issue. They had that pirate comic, and there's supposed to be an epilogue where, like, that pirate comic was going to sum everything up. Was it allegorical? It tied to the story then? Uh, it, it was about a, a sailor whose ship gets sunk and the Flying Dutchman comes along and he has to sell his soul to be rescued. And, and then he's trying to get his soul back after making this deal with the devil, basically. So it's not allegorical to anything in the Before Watchmen series. I guess you, that's kind of allegorical to what happens in Watchmen. But the artist got his own ideas for how it should end and like basically refused to do what the writer wanted him to do so they just didn't do the final issue artists can be replaced do they know that <laughs> i guess <laughs> len ween who was the original editor he wrote some of the stuff and he was writing this one he just said oh, i let the artists like do some of his own ideas and by the end it was so far from what i wanted to do it was just like forget it we'll just like sum it up on the last page and be done with it well, we're going to be done with this extra long books and nachos. Not quite as long as my stand review, but one of our lengthier shows. Jacob, thank you for joining me and bringing your fandom, your knowledge, and your insight into this book. And I'll say it caused me to revisit it, which I wouldn't have done otherwise, and realize it's really worth reading. It is definitely good, not even just from a historic perspective, but to see things that can be done with comics. I would think more people who work in comics today should actually revisit this yeah. so that they can realize that they're doing something more than just a flat two-dimensional movie on a page. I mean, yeah, I do feel like movies have kind of ruined modern comics. Maybe we'll talk about that tomorrow with the film adaptation. But yeah, as, as a, someone who likes to draw and I, I've drawn comics, like, I love the form of this. Like, it's something I really appreciated on a second and third reading is getting into the form. I feel like this is a book, even if you're not that into the story, you could just study it as here's how to do sequential art and learn a lot from it. And the story, look, we, we've talked about what we didn't like, but overall, it's an engaging story. If you can get through it. Yeah. <laughs> if you can get to the story parts. Yes. But you can join us tomorrow at nowplayingpodcast.com as Stuart joins us, and we're going to be discussing the movie, which I have seen five times as of this recording. All different cuts. <laughs> well, no, I actually watched the same cuts twice in a couple cases. I don't know what's worse, watching all that or having to read before Watchmen. <laughs> well, we split duties on this one. So. Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you this, reading before Watchmen would probably have been worse for me, and watching five cuts of the movie would probably yes. have been worse for you. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> but we'll find out if we're right. We haven't recorded that show yet. We're going to do that, but you can join us tomorrow at nowplayingpodcast.com. And I'll be back in a little bit with my review of The Dead Zone as we kick off Stephen King for 2016. And until then, remember to support your local bookstore or comic book store. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated.
Is the Absolute Edition what IDW does? Those giant, no, giant books? No, IDW, they actually take the original art. You're just getting the black and white art okay. scanned, original size. Absolute, they're not quite as big, but they're, again, archival paper, very high quality printing, a lot of extras. Because I picked up that IDW, they did the Lawnmower Man. <laughs> Really? Yeah, the original Marvel Lawnmower Man comic got like this huge freaking thing. I have no pl- It doesn't fit anywhere in my house. It's under my bed. It's that Yeah, bed. they're huge. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be like a blooper for the show, but I was just curious <laughs> if it was the same thing. That's funny. <laughs> it must have a famous like artist or something on it to do that. Yeah, I don't know. I was just it was right around the time we were covering it that it came out, too. I was like <laughs> doing my books and nachos when it was released. And I'm that like, funny. well, all right, I'll I'll add it to my books and nachos review. That thing was, I couldn't believe the size of it when it got here. It's like a toddler. Yeah, there. I mean, if you've ever seen a comic board, it's that size. Mm-hmm. It's actual reproductions of the original art. Yeah, comic boards look much smaller when I'm looking at them in a the portfolio. <laughs> yeah, when they're not the bound. Yeah, <laughs> I'd have to find a place to put them. <laughs> 